Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Hey guys, real quick, thank you to everyone who listens to my dad's show. This is the last episode until fall. Seriously, I hope racing has resumed by then for everyone's sanity. Make sure you've all subscribed on your streaming platform as my dad hopes to pull off a few cool things this summer you won't want to miss. He needs to thank some people for making this season happen. You guys, the people listening and driving the content. The guests, so many amazing visuals. Gary, the editor, thank you. You've been a lifesaver for us and freed up my dad from editing, which he doesn't love at all. And most importantly, these three companies of amazing supporters that foot the bill for the production of the talent tank. Without them, these past 12 episodes would never be able to happen. Todd at Custom Splice, Jason at Magnitude Performance, and Stan and Brandon at Brainiac. Machine, thank you for believing in my dad and the content he runs himself ragged to pull out. Oh, and my dad wants me to make sure you're leaving some ratings. He wrote down social proof and social validation for me to say. So do that. Okay, on to the episode. Enjoy! All right, all right, all right. Here we go. The finale of this kind of run, this uh, this spring run. The end of it, man, you know, it's been a really great run this spring. I've had a lot of amazing guests on, a lot of fun people on. We've got a lot of really great stories. I absolutely have loved it. I've loved every bit of, of it, and uh, it's really cool. I've got to thank, uh, I know you guys heard the pre-roll with uh, talking about Custom Splice and about Brannick and about Magnitude Performance. Those guys, let me tell you, I have finally, you know, had the opportunity. Like, I am now listening to the Talent Tank myself again now. As it goes out live, I can listen to it while I'm driving, and it's now re-exciting. I'm no longer like bored and frustrated by all the hours I've spent editing. But here we go. Let's do this. We're going to take off a little bit of time for the summer, and then we'll be right back at it. But you need to go out there. Make sure you're subscribing where you're listening to it because there are a couple things that uh, I'm trying to pull off this summer, and you won't want to miss it. I know you'll follow it on social media, on the Insiders page or something. But right here, what you dialed in for, why you turned on uh, your streaming this morning or today or this afternoon or today, why you're listening, Jim Marsden. I swear he is the winningest individual in Ultra 4. And people may want to dispute that. He's shaking his head like, well, you know, you got Eric Miller and you got some guys. I think Lauren's got me. Your trophy room is huge. But Jim, anyway, welcome from Great Britain. Thank you for uh, getting on here with me. What's going on? Oh, I'm good, mate. I'm good. Humble to be uh, talking to you right now. It's, this is very, very cool. Thank you. So I meet you. We're there in Hammertown. We're having a conversation. It's Wayne Israelson, Handsome Jay, yourself, Karen, Sam. And we had a little conversation about getting this set up. Yeah, no, it's very cool indeed. As I say, it's, uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. And uh, like everyone, we're all big fans of Talent Tank. We like to listen, hear the stories, hear what people have been having to say. And uh, so to get the opportunity to talk to you, mate, it's awesome. So thank you very much. Sometimes when you're trying on a certain timeline, a certain time frame, you're trying to pull off things in a certain order, you couldn't have been more prepared and more ready for this 
the, and when I asked you, you were just like spot on and we made it happen and, you know, just in quick order. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure, man. I mean, opportunities like this don't come around all too often. So make hay while the sun shines. So Jim, I know you have a, a day job outside of announcing for ultra four. I kind of know some of the stuff that you're into with, uh, with your business giggle pin winches. And I think you have some, do some land river repair work, but how has the current pandemic that we're seeing here in the United States, I know it's globally. How is that affecting you there in great Britain? Have you guys like quarantined? Have you done like work? You know, uh, you know, I don't know if your wife Karen works or any of that work from home stuff. How is what's going on impacted you guys over there on that side of the pond? It's been crazy. I mean, it's a worldwide pandemic. And uh, and so Great Britain has been suffering just as much as anyone else. In fact, we probably had one of the worst death rates, if I'm honest. But uh, but it's all a bit surreal. I think it is for everybody. I mean, one minute I find myself, I was over, um, I'm lucky enough to uh, commentate at the MIMP 400. And uh, so one minute I'm in Las Vegas commentating on the MIMP 400. The next time I'm on an aeroplane, everyone's wearing face masks and we're talking about shutting down countries. And the very next second, I'm back in the UK and, and it's it's really full on. But you're going to love this. I mean, I, I am so the antichrist of, co- of, of COVID-19, if you like. I literally arrived back from Las Vegas and they're talking about locking down countries. I then get back that day. I then fly to Ireland the following day to collect a vehicle. I then fly back from Ireland I then have to, uh, uh, I've got to collect a vehicle from in Europe. And uh, by this time, they're shutting down Belgium. They talk about shutting down all the other countries as well. And uh, But I've got no choice. I've, I've got to get this car. So <laughs> I shoot across to uh, uh, Holland. So I've got to go through France. I've got to go through Belgium, uh, shoot up into Holland, stay there with a friend. And uh, another friend of mine in Denmark phones me and says, hey, you know, you've got to get up here like now. They're closing the border of Denmark tomorrow. And so I'm having dinner in Holland and thinking, wow, what are we going to do? So I sort of sat down, finished my dinner, and I was with my friend Simon and said, uh, mate, I've got to go. I can't stay the night. I've, I've got to drive now. It's still an eight-hour drive to get into Denmark. He was like, okay, come on, I'll come with you. So his wife makes us some sandwiches. We jump in the rig. We haul it all the way across, out of Holland into, De- into Germany, up into Denmark, arrive at my friend's house in Denmark at 3.30 in the morning to have a couple of beers because... Why wouldn't you? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. You know, have a couple of hours sleep, get up the next day, pick this car up, have to head down out of Denmark. By this time, the I mean, the borders are full of soldiers and everything like this. And we're heading out of uh, heading out of Denmark. And it's crazy going out down through Germany. Uh, and I travel through Germany a lot. And occasionally you see the odd deer by the side of the road or something like that. But this time we're coming through and we see 120, well, we stop counting when we get to 120 deer. There's just deer all the way down the sides of the roads, pockets of twos and threes. It's just because there's no one on the road. So these things are coming out during the daylight. It was amazing. And then we drop back into Holland and, and uh, it was like something out of a war scene. We're chatting to Simon's daughter and she's, she works in the supermarket and they're limiting people to two loaves of bread and one bottle of milk. It was like, what is going on? So I stay the night there and, and uh, next morning I'm up early and I find that they're closing the borders on Belgium. It's like, oh my God. So, <laughs> but uh, I mean, this is how crazy it is. People who lived in Belgium, they couldn't go to restaurants or anything like that. So they're traveling out of Belgium into Holland to still go to restaurants because Holland was still oh, open. Wow. Yeah, exactly. But this is all happening like, and it's changing literally on the hour. It's the most strange thing ever. 
anyway, so we're, we're coming through that, and and uh, so I head out of Holland into Belgium. But by now, there's nowhere open, so there's nowhere to buy food. There's uh, you can still get fuel, but all the fuel stations are bare. There's no food in the fuel stations, and uh, hammer across France, and there's nothing there either. So I get had a bag of crisps or something, and uh, at um, oh, fries as you call them, and uh, get to the Channel Tunnel, which is the the tunnel that links France and Great Britain. Now, this is really, really busy. I mean, this place is absolutely rammed normally. I am the only car. Oh, no the kidding. The only car. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. It's like something out of, like, zombie watches or something. I don't know. It's like, where the hell is everyone gone? The whole terminal shut down. Everything's just computerized. You arrive. It's AMPR cameras. Take registration. No one talks to you. You go through. You sit in there waiting, waiting for something to come up on the screen. And there's no one there. And you're like, have I got the right time? Am I doing the right thing here? Went through. Again, it's all automated. You just follow your way through. Get to the train. There's actually somebody there, and she waves me on the train i drive onto the train and i drive straight to the front and it's just Only you still just me <laughs> it was like wow this is a bit weird anyway get back to the uk and uh, and then literally the day after i get back they start locking down hard it's you know it's like it's been everywhere for everyone around the world we were shut down for uh, i think five weeks so just you know pr- properly hard lockdown i mean i'm very fortunate our business is based in the countryside so you know, and we also we work on um, sort of dare we say key workers vehicles, so gamekeepers, doctors, farmers particularly, um, and so we furloughed all our staff. But uh, I was going in and just making sure that uh, anyone who had any troubles, they could, we could sort of fix their vehicles and get them out on the road again. Obviously, taking loads of care and just making sure that uh, we're just doing the bare minimum to uh, so that everyone stayed safe and, and sorted. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting time, that's for sure. I'm, I'm not sure I want to do it again. Right. But, yeah, it was cool. <laughs> now, do they have for you guys, you know, like the designations like essential worker or non-essential worker? Like, so is, yeah. So automotive business, which you're in the automotive business is, so you're essential. So you guys stayed open throughout the whole thing? Well, we stayed. I, we stayed open. I was working. All my staff were furloughed, so all my staff was staying at home. Um, it was just me there on my own, and then Karen would come in on the occasional day just to pick up paperwork and stuff like that. But it was just it was me, and uh, and, and you know what? It was, it was like dropping back twenty three years to when I first started out, and I rolled into work on my own and pick up my spanners and get on with it. And uh, it was it was yeah, it's kind of weird to say, but. I kind of enjoyed it. It was, um, there was no one around, you know, I, I took up cycling again and, uh, which I haven't done for years and I'm getting a bit old for that kind of stuff. And so I started cycling to cycling to work, which is sort of eight miles a day. Well, there's no traffic, right? So no one to hit you. Yeah, there's no one there. And you know, I'm, I'm cutting down through a couple of woods on my way down through and seeing deer and all kinds of other stuff all over the place. And, uh, yeah, it was, it's, it was, it was pretty cool actually, I, I have to say. And, and, uh, and we, we helped out some people, you know, we had there some, uh, some customers who uh, we've known for years and had their problems, farmers, gamekeepers, people like that, uh, people who are putting through, uh, looking after, you know, the land and looking after the animals and stuff. And when their vehicles break, they need those vehicles. So we were just there to pick up the tire, pick up the pieces and shove them back together. <laughs> it was good fun. I always love talking to you, you guys, you know, I say you guys, like in, actually anyone that's outside of the, more or less the state of Texas and how your the dialect is different, not necessarily your accent, <laughs> but the, the dialect and different uses of things like, you know, we say y'all for many things or for driving by a, like a parking lot and it's full, it's covered with, you know, it, there's every parking spot's full. They say it's covered up. 
right? Uh, hey, that oh, parking okay. lot's covered okay. up. Yeah, it's busy. Gotcha. But you, you know, you're talking about a wrench, and you're like, oh yeah, I can pick up a spanner, and and it exactly. always catches me every time, like spanner. And you know, when I'm reading through <laughs> kind of your bio on stuff, uh, and how you speak and you type different, you know, you, you actually speak in a dialect that's almost you know separate. And I'm reading through it, I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I'm prepared to talk to these guys. You know, this Brit, you know. <laughs> well, it could be a whole lot worse. Um, it, my uh, accent is actually reasonably easy to understand. Uh, some of the dialects here are really, really tough, and some of them even I struggle to understand. Oh, yeah, like like Drew Wright, I can understand Drew Wright. Ian Cherry, I can <laughs> understand Ian Cherry. But when I talk to Rob Butler, I struggle talking to Rob Butler. Like, And I love Rob. He builds awesome stuff. You know, I've had to, you know, uh, what is it? I've had to collect his bonnet from uh, from the Houston Ship Channel. Yeah, when it, when, no, I like it. That. That's good. Yeah, That's yeah good. I got it. We're going to be saying tomato shortly. Right, right. So I, I had to pick up his his car. Uh, it got shipped over here for King of the Hammers a couple of years ago, maybe 2017, eight, somewhere in there. And Levi surely drove down from Kansas and picked it up from my shop. But so I've talked to Rob a few times and I just, I struggle to understand him, but I understand you very well. And obviously a lot of people understand you because so, and, you know, enough people believed you enough to put you, hand you a microphone and let you talk to millions. So that yeah, that's, uh, it's, just, it's still a little bit surreal if I'm completely honest. It's uh, very surreal. I, I also forget, when I mean, going back to this COVID-19 thing, um, I was just actually rebuilding my race car. We provisionally sold it to a guy from New Zealand. And uh, and again, whilst this was just happening and all of this stuff was just closing down, Italy got it really bad. And uh, and I had a friend of mine, he actually flew from Italy, Ferdinando, and uh, he flew over from Italy to help us work on the car. They had to fly from Rome because they're close to all the northern airports in uh in Italy, so it's fine oh, for wow. Rome. So we were like, oh man, we were, we were so like the, the you know, the COVID antichrists. We also had two friends fly over from Malta at the same time, and it was all allowed, you know. And we didn't expect everyone to be shut down. So we had we had guys from Italy, we had guys from Malta, we had Stan from New Zealand come all the way over from New Zealand. Then we had some other people there as well. Oh mate, it was absolutely nuts. And then as I say, I just got back from the US, so we had this melting pot of international people all at my place and uh yeah i'm sure if the authorities found out they probably wouldn't have been amused but uh, just to be clear it was before we were locked down so uh yeah it's amazing how the world's all of a sudden changed it's like i've got um a friend of mine Helder de rocha i've got his race car sitting at my place at the moment he lives in portugal he can't come and get it he can fly to england but then he's got a quarantine for 14 days uh, uh but the most difficult part is he can't actually get the car back through france or back through spain to get it back to portugal so his race cars just sat here so there's just another example of how the pandemic's affecting us all well and, and from my standpoint you know i'm trying to do a you know this this show a weekly show on racing and when we don't have racing it, it, i don't know how like espn even keeps going right now you know they're showing like the cornhole championships it's hard to talk ultra four when we don't really have anything to talk about Oh, I think there's always something to talk about with Ultra 4. We've got so much history. I mean, back to 2007 and, and so many amazing races that have come through there. And there's so the, the history, the innovation. I mean, we could, let's be honest, we could talk for a week on innovation in cars. I mean, look back at that very first race, at those first vehicles, and then just look at where we are now. There, you know, there's, there's so much content. Well, I'm going to Easter egg this. This is, this is the Easter egg drop. That's something that we're working on for the summer is uh, something of a uh, a tech show that's going to be um, 
I think that the idea right now that's on the table is it's going to be like a round table with a, a handful of guys that are very much in the know on the, you know, on that bleeding edge of uh, innovation in ultra four. And that's one of the things we're going to try to pull out this summer and see if it's successful. I mean, that's the thing, you know, that we've seen certainly in racing and in ultra fours, you do something, if it works, then awesome. If it fails, you cut it off and you make a new one. So we were kind of, you know, applying that logic to this podcast genre of uh, this medium, so to speak, for our uh, for our industry, we're going to try something. We're going to try a couple things this summer. If they don't work, we'll cut them off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, looking back at the innovation that's worked through Ultra Four in the last sort of like you know thirteen years, it's incredible. When we first started, you saw huge differences. The cars were almost unrecognizable year on year. The changes were so vast. But now, what we're seeing is we're getting close to that pinnacle of you know greatness and so we're seeing small changes minute changes we're seeing the top drivers tweaking geometry on already proven setups to try to get that nth degree to try and stay ahead or to try to get ahead and uh, and it's amazing now where before the engineering was you know if you could pick up a grinder and a bit of tube and you could cut it and weld it you had a chance nowadays though we are so aiming at that pinnacle it's a different kind of race engineering to where we were 13 years ago and uh, and i find it amazing but there is still that opportunity for that guy at home sitting in a garage to put something together and to bring it out there and stick it on that race course and be successful and that's what drives so many people i know you're you're spot on and this just this landed in front of me this week and it was someone put out i want to say they're 2011 2012 somewhere in there and i believe they were roush creek pictures and it was a bunch of them it was like a picture dump and one of those in there, as I noticed, because this was the obvious, you know, we see Eric Miller show up every year and his car looks the same, right? He doesn't, he hasn't changed sponsors a bunch. It's the yellow with the mountains and the black on the bottom. The cars all look the same, very similar, but it was funny. Yeah. That picture, you know, if you look at Eric Miller 2020 versus 2019 versus 2018, it all looks like the same car. It might be the same car. We don't know everyone, you know, the speculation that he changes cars every six months. Yeah, whatever that is. But this one, when you look back, this is eight years ago or so, the car looked the same, except for it was about six inches taller. The wheel proportioning mm -hmm. were different. And you tell, wow, wow, Eric's car still has the same livery, but wow, the proportions are very different setup. Yeah, um, it's really interesting watching uh, Eric's evolution as he comes through. He keeps his cards very close to his chest, which why, why wouldn't you? And uh, but he's just always looking for those little tiny degrees of magic that make the difference. And, uh, you know, he's one of the very few that are stuck with solid axle and is absolutely determined uh, to prove its worth. But, I mean, you know, let's just let's just drop onto Miller cars for a minute. I mean, everyone was sitting there saying, you know, solid axles done. We've finished with solid axle, only good for King of the Hammers. Then we get a Reno, which is a, a full on IFS short course. Everybody's talking about the IFS cars, and then Rusty Byler turns up and completely flips the form book on its head, qualifies having rolled over uh, multiple times, qualifies second just behind Dan Warwick, and then lays it down in the main, leading for, I think, three laps. It was incredible. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. And then that was, then something took him out. Um... Yeah, it's a tire. He did a tire. I mean, he was uh, he was chasing down Paul Herschel. And, uh, you know, Paul, we all know Paul's packing, what, 800, 850 horse? 
And uh, and every time they go on that long hill climb, it just you see Paul just easing away from Rusty, and then Rusty will be slamming back into him again on the rest of the lap, pulling back that distance again. It was a fantastic race to watch. And, uh, and unfortunately, he, he had a tire bite him in the end. But, uh, but I mean, incredible, absolutely incredible. And I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to gloss over this, but we still have another, there is another famous solid axle holdout, and that's Randy Slauson in the Bomber exactly. in the bomber series. Yeah. Well, I mean, Randy, of course, is famously races KOH, doesn't so do so much of the short course stuff, which I think is a real shame because, you know, that man can drive. I mean, I remember the first time I ever saw him in the rocks and uh, I was I was broken up. At, I think it was Highway 19 and 20 and I was kind of licking my wounds. And uh, and we heard the bomber coming and it was like, holy mother of God, look at the speed of this. I mean, we'd never seen anything like it. And, and it's all very well watching the videos and it's all very well watching the guys come into Hammertown. But when you actually see them on those trails, when you actually see them out there on the Hammer trails themselves, that's when you understand how fast these guys are on the rocks. It's unbelievable. Yeah, they're skipping, right? I mean, really, when you say skipping rocks, it's not skipping rocks across the top of a pond. It's their tires skipping and touching every seventh or eighth yeah. rock. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're cool. I, I like to uh, call that flow. And, uh, and they've got this, this flow. They've got this way of just making that car kind of rabbit across the rocks. So they, they're feeling it in their feet. And uh, when you try to explain to people how these guys drive and their left foot braking constantly to load up the car, so you're always getting that little bit of a launch every single time. And the drivers do it instinctively without even realizing they're doing it. And you, as you say, you get this kind of rabbit effect where they're hopping across the rocks. And, uh, and when you get a guy who's really on point, who's just feeling that car, it's just that perfect flow right way up through. When you see other guys smashing their cars to bits, and there'll just be that one guy or a couple of guys who just make it look like a cakewalk every single time. And they're the ones whose names are always in the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why they're, you know, they're the most winningest cars. I mean, you were saying earlier about me being the most winningest. I don't think I am. I think that's Lauren Healy's or Shannon's um, got, has got that. But the uh you know those that's why these guys are always superb and supreme at what they do they are just magicians in those environments and we talk about ifs and we talk about solid axle do you know what it makes no difference what car you put those guys in they are going to excel it's solid axle or ifs it's not at at their level it's not just the car it's about the guy behind the wheel and it's as simple as that. They choose what they want to race, but put them in anything, they'll still be at the top. Kind of like a Robbie Gordon. Yeah, but without the attitude. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I gotta gotta put this right. I love Robbie Gordon. I, this is one of my, oh, my most cringeworthy. Oh man, one of my most cringing stories ever. I was at Hammers a few years back, and there was Robbie Gordon and Dave Cole's going, "Hey Jim, come over." So I've gone over and I'm like, hey, Mr. Gordon, I'm like a really big fan. I think you're amazing. And you could see him just roll his eyes into the back of his head and just go, great, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, yeah, it super sucked. Uh, I walked away with my head <laughs> in my hands going, God, why did I do that? <laughs> You've got to start somewhere, right? You've got to meet him at some point and start having the conversation with them. So that by the time you're at conversation 10 or 12, they recognize you that they, or they kind of recognize you. At least they know who, what you do. And that you're somebody who is kind of in that circle of trust that they can have a conversation with that you're not going to walk up and be like, I need to sign this for my kid or <laughs> my neighbor's kid three doors yeah. down, his nephew. Uh, so very true, very true. I mean, in fact, I, uh, going back to the Gordons, I, I met Bob Gordon in uh, Mexico at, uh, in, in Cabo back in 2014. We'd just done the Nora 1000. Had the most amazing experience. And, 
I got introduced to Bob Gordon on the beach at the prize giving. Uh, wow, what an amazing man. He, he gave me an hour. He didn't know me from, he didn't know me from Adam, didn't have a clue who I was. Stood there, we just talked and drank and had fun, and and he told me all about his life story basically for an hour. It was incredible. So uh, I was very very sad when I heard of his passing. Uh, so what an incredible man. Well, I think that says something about you, though, Jim. It's it, you're you're an approachable guy that you can have a conversation with, and that you legitimately are engaged in conversation. Oh, just, yeah, how can you not? be excited by these people with these cars the the action the stories i mean when you're standing there and talking to bob gordon and he's telling you about how the hell he he picked up a drive because Penelli jones had basically been kicked off the team and he'd won something the week before and they slammed him into a car and he went on to win the baja i mean this is the stuff that dreams are made of legends are made of and and it changed his life forever and you take those little stories away with you and you think you know what maybe maybe one day that could be me and uh and i think it's, it's those dreams that that make us love this motorsport so much and you know i think what do they call that butterfly effect or something along those lines i think that is the right word for it could you imagine had parnelli jones not been kicked off that team bob gordon didn't end up in that car robbie doesn't end up being the who robbie exactly. is exactly yeah. We'd know, we, would can we you be, imagine a world without Robbie Gordon? A world, a world without stadium super trucks. A world without so many other things. You know, and without um, you know, Planet Robbie for a start, which is uh, got to be my favorite thing on YouTube. I think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they'll make your head explode when you start thinking about it in that form or fashion. Yeah, it is. It is. It's uh, it's incredible. But you have it's these little chances that completely change lives around. You know, just like that guy Lauren Healy turned up a few years ago. You know, uh, the uh, ran the um, LCQ, won that to replace in hammers, and everyone was like, "Who the hell's this guy?" Next thing, he wins it. Bang! Have some of that, guys. Right. But, uh, oh yeah. By the way, <laughs> my name's Lauren Healy. Uh, incredible! What a story, and uh, and that's why we love it. Uh, but we, we say this all the time. We yes, you hear about the heroes, but when you walk around Hammertown, every single team in Hammertown or any of these races, for that matter. They all have a backstory. They all have a story about the fact they've been working on their car for six months and that they're, you know, the guy across the street's been helping fund it and the, you know, their grandmother's in the hall or out the back making lunch for them. And, you know, it's everybody has that kind of story. And that's what's so exciting. And that's why I always say to people, get out there, get in the pits, go and talk to these people because they all have fascinating stories. And you're proving that with this podcast. Well, I think to come out of that is some of the small guy stories that don't get told that end up being just amazing. Like, you know, jumping back to like Nate Williams, Nate Jesse, you know, his story from hammers 2019, like burning the truck down, you know, his 18 and we all, all of his adversity to just, you know, stuff, uh, you know, just this past week, you know, carrying Rob Usnick and a lot of people, you know, Rob's even retired from you for, for the most part, uh, he, he'll show up and drink beers on occasion, but people are like, Oh my gosh, that guy's, you know, just the, the fact the story gets out there and then they actually hear it and they're like, I love being a part of this community. Uh, the, the characters that who are involved and I want to evolve back with you. Let's, <laughs> let's go to where you're from, Jim, Mr. Jim Marsden here. Mm. We threw it out there earlier. You're in the UK, you're in great Britain, but you live in, I'll probably say around Tunbridge, Tunbridge Wells. Live in Tunbridge Wells. Tunbridge little, Wells. Uh, but, raw, yeah. So Royal Spa Town. We're about an hour south of London and uh, and about an hour from the south coast. So, uh, yeah, we're in a nice place. Now, did you grow up in Tunbridge? 
Uh, I did, yeah. I grew up in this area, and uh, in fact, I lived in a, a little village called Lai uh, with my mum and dad. And it was a very small, very quiet place. Well, it was quiet until we were old enough to buy motorbikes, and then it was quite a noisy place. Yeah, no, it's great. And we just grew up, and it's basically one of those sort of perfect childhoods. You know, I had some great friends around me, and we were just into anything hunting fishing if it moved or flied it died and and uh, we spent hours down at the river catching nothing and uh, and then found motorbikes and then sort of found cars and it kind of all went on from there really i mean your mom and dad is that kind of the area they're from you guys have multi-generations within that area or yeah well in fact my dad's parents came down from um up north so they were up sort of liverpool kind of way so lancashire and then they moved down after the war um, my granddad worked in a uh, in a hurricane factory. He was a foreman there, helping to produce aircraft for the war effort. And then they moved down to uh, Hampshire, which is a, another south ca- uh, southern county. And they raised their family there. They had three kids. And my mom comes from a uh, a Kentish family, and um, which is where we still live in Kent. And uh, in fact, I still live literally doors away from where my mum grew up. And uh, she has uh, three sisters and a brother. And uh, an incredible family. Yeah, it was. It's just really nice, and that they met. That uh, you know, there's this sort of no, there's no money involved or anything. My dad worked at a fish and chip shop, and my mum sort of saw him and thought, "What an idiot!" And a few years later, they got married. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, and then, uh, but they, they, you know, they're just. Uh, I really respect my mum and dad. Are my, you know, dare I say, my favourite people. They're just so happy, and. Uh, they have a lovely house in Lye. They uh, they worked hard for them. They're just enjoying their time, and uh, they're both retired now. And it's uh, yeah, I was, when my mum retired, I did wonder if she would kill my dad, but uh, in fact, quite the reverse. They they've never been happy, so happy, and and, uh, and unfortunately with this COVID thing, they've they've been in proper lockdown. You know, they're they're high risk. They're over seventy, well, my dad is, and um, and so they're just staying out of the way of everything. In fact, when I flew back from Vegas. Uh, uh, my dad phoned me. He said, uh, "said Hey, just want to tell you that we're really proud of what you did." And I was like, "Oh, fantastic!" He said, "But don't come round." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, I get you." We canceled Mother's Day in my family because of that this year, and that was because I went to go hang out yeah. with the tribe guys for uh, and JT Taylor. We we met in Fort Worth for like three, like a couple hours. We were together like maybe two hours, and we my family they canceled Mother's Day because I'd been interacting with people. <laughs> but you've been in Vegas. Yeah, well, you got well. To be fair, mate, if you're going to have a surrogate mother, then uh, JT is probably the man. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> man, uh, yeah, I don't want to yeah, get no, off on sorry, tangent no, on that, but um, I, I did. I even talked to JT today. He's such a good guy. Good people in Ultra Four. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but. 
with extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10 plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yod, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, duels, and triples, they've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back-ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you're a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. How were you as a kid? Were you like a motorhead, a gearhead? Is that what you're into? Or were you more into sports or where were you kind of leading through school? Well, my dad really wasn't a, uh, a sports person at all. He, he didn't do shooting and he, he did. We did went fishing on holiday, but that was all, you know, he was very much focused on, uh, we have an older, uh, an older house uh, built in the 18th century. And so he was really focused on working and getting the house straight, you know, and it took over 10 years for him to get the house straight. And he was working every weekend. And he had a, we had a small yacht. I mean, really nothing flash at all, you know, and, and uh, we all had to work hard and scrub the paint off it every year and paint it all up. And there, there was nothing given for free, you know, every, every penny had to be worked hard for. And it was, there, there was tough times uh, when we were growing up. And then he blew the, my socks off one day and I, I always loved motor cars and things and I think I was 13 and I came home one day and out the back there was a uh, a motorbike a trail bike and I, I wouldn't get close to it but so I was looking at it and I'm thinking and my dad was at work and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking well, who the hell is that well, why are we looking after this bike it was an old one but I'm like wow and I knew that I didn't go near it and I'd get a strap across me if I touched it. So um, imagine my shock when the uh, the next day, uh, my dad says, come on, we'll go and have a look at this bike. So we get down there and he went, it's for you. I was like, what? And he was like, it's for you. And I was like, I just, done, done. Couldn't stop crying for about a week, I don't think. It was incredible. But it, you know, it was it was hard work. It was an old YZ125 and someone stuck a 100cc barrel on it. And, oh, man, I rebuilt that engine. Oh, Christ, it must have been felt, felt like a 100 times. And we had an old sort of what's called a Triumph Dolomite, right old banger it was. And uh, I cut up some I-beams with a hand hacksaw to make a frame to go on the back so that we could uh, take this bike down to a local bike track and race it round, and i have to say i was truly the worst motorcycle rider in history if there was a lump or a bump i would hit it if there was a way to fall off i would find it i was truly shocking but 
I couldn't stop smiling. It was incredible. And uh, and that sort of went on. And, um, unfortunately, that bike broke and I bought my, I saved us some money and bought another one. And that was even worse. But me and my mates would go over the fields and I shouldn't say this. We used to cut the locks off the gates and put our own padlocks on so we could get into these fields and then uh, rip them wide open. And uh, yeah, everything was uh, that we'd have to take the bikes back down. We'd break the gear leaves off, take them to the local garage, get them to weld it up again and give them a couple of beers from my dad's fridge. <laughs> you know, it's normal stuff. And uh, I don't know, is that normal? It was normal for us. And uh, and it was great. And But yeah, I mean, genuinely, it was uh, all done with, you know, just laughter and fun. And uh, a very, very little money indeed. And then uh, and as we got older, that disappeared. I always wonder where uh, the hook was set on guys, you know, like as we come across our friends and, you know, our acquaintances and whatever in, in this genre, where did the hook get set? Because it got set somewhere. And so it was you and an old Triumph is uh, is kind of where you got yeah. the, you, the hook oh, mate, set. I mean, you're, you're thinking Triumph sports cars, yeah? Okay. No, I was thinking Do the bike. No, this is a bike, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, the Triumph Dolomite was this like boxy little old car. It's a horrible thing. And uh, it was all we could afford. And uh, and the bike was, I, as I say, I still don't know where my, why my dad bought it for me. It was incredible. Um, but uh, that led me on. And then um, we all grew up a little bit. And uh, I went to take my driving test when I was 17. And you got to love this. I failed. And I failed my driving test. And I was so pissed. I, I was convinced I passed. I just, but they failed me on progressing around a corner, not enough observations or something. And uh, they failed me. So I was like, God damn. I was so upset. I didn't take my driving test for three years. I know that's kind of how stubborn I am, stupidly. And then on my 20, when I just turned 20, I took my driving test again, passed. And and that's when it all started, really, because um, I bought an old 1969. You're going to hear that word number a lot. But a 1969 Series 2A Land Rover. It would do 45 mile an hour if you threw it off a cliff. Two and a quarter <laughs> diesel. Oh, man, it was shocking. What a piece of junk. We blew the gear. Oh, sorry. Not we. I blew the gearbox up. I'm driving it home five miles from where we bought it. Had to uh, rebuild the gearbox with literally just a car. I, I had very little money. I'd spend it all on this bloody car. And uh, so we rebuilt this gearbox, put it back together. And you know what? That car was amazing. It was a heap of junk, but we took the roof off. And I used to have this old wax tarpaulin when I parked it up when I was at work. And I was working in pubs and stuff like the bars i used to pull up outside chuck this old wax tarpaulin over the top because we're in england so it rained but it was so cool to have no roof so i chucked this tarpaulin over it and then run back out up when it finished work take the tarpaulin off and start driving i worked on the theory that uh if you were driving you wouldn't get wet <laughs> right don't as long as you don't stop yeah exactly exactly oh we yeah we had some great times with that vehicle and then um and then that will change. We, we have these things in this country called green lanes. So these are unofficial roads that, or they're off-road roads, basically. So there's no tarmac or anything. And some of these are road legal. They're green lanes. And uh, we used to scour the maps and look for these green lanes around us and stuff. And we went out to a green lane one day and I was driving down it and the gear lever snapped off at the base. I mean, literally at the base. It's like, Mate, you can't make this up. I was sitting there going, well, how am I going to get home? So uh, we phoned a friend and he came down to get us and he, and he actually had a, 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 a what we call a, a Land Rover 90, which was only about probably six years old. 
And he towed me up this hill faster than I could have driven up it. And I was like, that's it. I am having one of those. I don't care what I have to do. I'm having one. And, uh, and so it started. I, I sold the other one, bought a, a newer vehicle, saved my money, bought a newer vehicle. And then I started off-roading, dare I say, properly. Had some bigger tires and more horsepower and used to hang out with friends and go to some amazing off-road sites around us. All play and day stuff, you know, pay and play style stuff. Nothing serious, you know, no competitions or anything. And, uh, and we used to have a, an absolute riot. It was, it was great fun. Good times. All downhill from there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What year was this? Mid early nineties? Yeah, that would have been early nineties, mid nineties, somewhere around there. And, uh, and it was, yeah, it was, it was awesome. And, uh, we were just, yeah, just having fun. And I was, I mean, at the time I, I didn't really have a career. I was messing around. I was working, helping out on local, uh, pheasant shoots and, uh, in exchange for a bit of free shooting and, uh, and, you know, getting to being allowed to shoot the rabbits and stuff like that. Cause I was really into all of that. And then, um, I was working in bars and working on golf courses and just generally anything I could do to, to earn a few quid, you know? I'm going to back, back up a little bit and maybe botch all this up, but I think you went to school like formal education to be a cabinet maker. Is that right? Like good working with wood? <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my dad, uh, my granddad was a cabinet maker. Okay. And, uh, a very good, a very, very good one. And, uh, and my dad was a, uh, a, although we had the family business was like fish and chip shops. He was, uh, he, he learned a lot from his dad as well. And he was an antique restorer, very high end antique restorer in his spare time. And, doing stuff like that as well. And, uh, and I kind of picked up on that when I was at school and started doing all those kinds of things. And I found myself at the age of 16 at the Sir John Cass Faculty of Arts, London College of Furniture in London. And uh, So wow, literally it is a college of furniture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an wow. amazing place. It's still there today. And, uh, and they teach, uh, you know, they teach you how to make, uh, depending on which courses you're on, how to make classical musical instruments or classical furniture and all this kind of thing. And uh, the minimum course requirement was 18, but I got in on the, uh, the quality of my work at the age of 16, uh, which was fatal, if I'm honest. I, uh, yeah, 16-year-old <laughs> being let loose with lots of older people in London wasn't really a good look, if you think about it. <laughs> and now, no, so, but, uh, but that didn't work out for you, though, right? I mean, so you finished. No, but- well, I kind of finished, but I um, mean, the first year I passed with distinctions in every lesson. I was, I was on it, and I was, I was still at that. I just come out of high school, so I was like, I had that that school mentality where you were given a job and you just got it done. Then the second year came, and I realised that there was a big world out there full of things, alcohol and women and other things, and and uh, yeah, I barely scraped a pass the next year, and uh, then I kind of fell out of that and continued my life of sort of still working on shoots and farms and hanging out and, you know, working in bars and stuff like that and working for pocket money, really. Um, I mean, around that time, I was sort of a uh, semi-pro is probably a bit high, but we used to do a lot of clay shooting and I had a, I had a buddy. Um, we used to go clay shooting together and anything we used to win, we'd pot together. So all cartridges and stuff like that and split it. So if one of us is having a bad day, it didn't matter because the other one was doing good and vice versa. That worked quite well for a couple of years. 
it was a crazy time. And then, as I say, at, uh, when I was about 21 was the big change. I'd just uh, gone away on my first ever kind of holiday with my friends. Come home and uh, my busted ass Land Rover, I'd, I'd given it to another friend to do some work on. And, uh, and he basically, he gave me a much bigger bill than I was expecting. And I, I was like, shit. Then I lost my job at the same time. And I was like, oh, man. And, uh, and he said, look, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come and work for me and learn a trade? And I was like, well, I don't really want to be a mechanic. And he was like, well, you're not doing anything else and you owe me money. I was like, well, actually, that's a very valid point. So I went to work for him and I was earning, well, it would be the equivalent of like four bucks an hour. It was really painfully low and uh, at the age of 21, you know. But I started to learn about mechanics and I started to learn about cars and uh i wasn't the sharpest tool but what i was is i'm a fast learner and uh when i do things i like to do things well so i started to learn and robin um started to really teach me and that's where it all really started to kick and it all started to make sense and some lines became to form in my what, what had been a very tangled youth so you transitioned though pretty quickly from making four bucks an hour to making probably less as being a business owner, but you, uh, <laughs> right, right. You know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. So yeah. So oh, you- God. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the crazy thing is, I mean, actually I'm, okay, I must've been 20 at the time when I went to work for him thinking about it because literally three years later, he t- suddenly turned around and, and said, I'm, I've sold the house. Myself, Kerry, and Jennifer, who is his other half and daughter or stepdaughter, said, we're moving to Wales. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, we're moving down to Wales. Now, Wales is a country on the side of Great Britain, and it's a four, what, three and a half, four-hour drive from where we live. And I was like, wow, that's a, um, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, well, come with me. Yeah, that's Chris what? Bowler country over there. That is, yeah, yeah. In fact, it's a, a little bit closer than Chris. Chris is in Lampeter, and this was uh, in Clenethley, and uh, which Chris will know well because he has to drive past it to get to Lampeter. But the uh, uh, yeah, so I moved down to Wales for six months and helped Robin and his family set up their business down there, and, and it was cool. I mean, it was an amazing place, and you know, I, I was still batshit crazy about shooting so while we set another workshop i'd have a shotgun left against the side just in case any pigeons flew over and oh it was madness and uh, and we were building these outbuildings and putting up workshops and yeah it was it was a it was a great time but i realized that you know what all my family and my girlfriend and everything was still in kent so uh, after about six months i said to robin thank you so much for the opportunity but uh, it's time for me to go home and you didn't speak welsh did you no, no, no. There's uh, a great story about that. We went into a pub there one night, and uh, me and Robin have walked in there. Classic country pub. Walked in there, everyone goes silent. And we're like, yeah, whatever. Walked to the bar. By order two pints of beer, we sat there, we're talking amongst ourselves, and the uh, three guys in the corner of the bar, and uh, they're staring at us. And then they start talking. And they start talking, I'm guessing it's Welsh. Haven't got a clue. Anyway, the night goes by. Turns out that, uh, and they were, trying to speak in Welsh. Night goes by, and anyway, we finally break into conversation with these guys. And it uh, turns out that uh, they were trying to speak Welsh, but one of them doesn't speak Welsh. The other one only spoke a little bit. One, only one of them actually spoke any at all, uh, but they don't like outsiders, so they were determined to speak Welsh. Well, <laughs> we were there. It was hilarious. And, uh, we ended up back at their farmhouse at about 3 o'clock in the morning drinking some God knows awful spirits. And they became firm friends after that. It was hilarious. (laughs) 
Yeah, I can see that. You know, pub relationships, they're always good. You always find out, you know, either you're going to meet really cool people. Like, again, this goes back to the birds of a feather flock together theory, or you end up fighting. Yeah, this is very true. Thankfully, I've always avoided that one. Uh, Although you're going to notice that uh, there's always, in most of these stories, there's always alcohol involved. Um, So I do apologize for that. (laughs) Ah, That's that's just the way it goes. So you end up back in Kent, girlfriend and... What did you do for a living there for in the in the interim before hitting 23 when you decide to hang yeah. your own shingle? Well, this is the thing. I mean, I came home and I had no money. I mean, I had literally what was in the bank, and uh, uh, which wasn't very much. Um, unfortunately, but I I did have an ace in the hole, which is a terrible thing actually, because uh, in 1990 my uncle passed away. He was killed in a motorcycle accident. And uh, his estate was broken up. And myself, my cousin, and my brother were given a little bit of money from the estate. And I took that money, and, uh, and I said, "Well, in fact, before this, you know, I was talking about getting jobs and stuff." And and to be honest, I kind of tasted freedom working for Robin. Robin was a Robin is an amazing person. He's as free as a bird, you know. He he ran a great little workshop and still does. And and he taught me that uh, you know some important life lessons. And I thought I don't actually want to go and work in another garage with someone breathing down my neck on timescales and stuff. And my dad is a you know, very positive person. And he said, look, just, you know, if you want to do this, just go and do it. So I took my little bit of money I'd been left. I think it was a 8,000 pounds. And, uh, and I got a friend of mine around who worked for a local motor factors. Well, motor factors is a place that sells tools and parts and stuff. And we kind of come up with a plan to buy a, a four-post hoist and some trolley jacks and some, you know, oil drainers and but stuff you need to start a small garage. And uh, then I saw an old family friend and I rented a barn on a, a very small barn on his farm. Then bugger me if in October 1997, I didn't open the doors to Gigglepin independent Land Rover specialist extraordinaire. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. Crazy. How did you come up with that name, though? Uh, when I initially heard the name before even knowing you, how does Giggleping become the name? Well, there we are. We're, we've got this business concept, which is I am going to start a business with less than three years mechanical knowledge, okay, fixing other people's Land Rovers. It's madness when you think about it now. But we were sat there and we're trying to come up with names and the things like autos and motors. And I hate that. I really hate it. And uh, anyway, we're sat in the, the local village pub just around the corner from my mum and dad's house. And we're there with a few friends. And my dad walks in the pub and he never comes in the pub. And they said, got something for And we went, giggle pin. Really? What's that? And he went, just holds his finger up for silence. We all went silent. He went, think about it. Walked out of the pub. We all sat there and just went, how ridiculous. Anyway, three points later, it was absolutely giggle pin it is. <laughs> That's where it came from. It's incredible. And by, I don't know, some things in my life just happened that way. And my dad in 1997 pulled a name out of the hat that's Google friendly even to this day. Well, yeah, there's, I don't know anyone else named and no one's going to take it from you, right? No, no, it's uh, it's kind of what it is. It's uh, it's uh, and a giggle pin is everyone actually knows what it is. If you, you know on a thermostat, you get that little pin on the side that jumps and jiggles around. That's a giggle pin. Simple as that. They have other uses as well. And uh, but yeah, that's basically what a giggle pin is. And uh, 
and it was just like yeah it's kind of quirky it's it's kind of cool and it's uh it's a blessing to have chosen that name at that particular time and here we are 23 years later and it's incredible you can travel around the world and, and if you go into off-road circles it's a pretty good chance someone's heard of giggle pin no absolutely very very common and well now we it's very synonymous with jim marsden as well but <laughs> so yeah, yeah i mean giggle pin today though i mean you guys do everything from change a light bulb to completely redo rebuild uh, uh land rovers yeah, yeah well we're, we're still an independent land rover specialist so we have no nothing to do with land rover whatsoever but we have a six bay double workshop or six double bay workshop now it's fantastic we get to work on you know customers cars from all over europe and uh, and we do exactly what you say you know one minute we're working on a little old lady's car down the road and we're just getting it ready for its yearly tests and the next minute we're working on some pretty funky stuff with uh, some pretty big engines in so yeah it's it's very very cool it's very varied and uh you know i go to work every morning with a spring in the step it's it's absolutely wonderful and then the other side of the business we have the uh, the winches and uh so you know back well, in you knew what, where i was going was, that was gonna be my next yeah, segue yeah. like what <laughs> well, we're, we're, made you get into that business <laughs> well, in 1997, I started Gable Pin, and, uh, and, and I always said I would never start racing because I'm that kind of personality that I have to do everything to excess. I have to do it well if I'm going to do it at all. And, uh, and I always knew that I'd sell my grandmother to, to fund a race car. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what my personality is like, so I avoided it. Then in uh, 2000, me and some friends. In fact, do you, do you know Will Overton? You, you probably bumped into Will Overton through KOH and things. I know yes, sir. Here. Well, myself, Will Overton, and a guy called Ben Sugden, we jumped into two Land Rovers and we headed out to Sweden for the Swedish off-road tour. Now, this is really before the internet. So we'd seen a little, a little article in an off-road magazine and uh, we went, we're going to Sweden. So we booked a ferry and we went. <laughs> it was crazy. And uh, so we, we get to Denmark and then from Denmark, we go to, into Sweden and we start trying to find this bloody place. And, and we found it. And uh, we found some other Brits there. And we met, uh, we met people from all over the world. We met uh, uh, some very influential people, particularly a Dutch guy called Rob Goshemir and a uh, and a Hungarian guy called Andras Girash, who both had Defender 90s, and uh, but opposite ends of the scale. So Rob's was like brand new, but had this big roll cage and huge 900 by 16 tires. Then we had Andras's, which was like from the uh, you know late 80s, but had every conceivable extra known to man on it. And he was there with his 10 uh, year old daughter, and uh, and it was uh, oh, it was incredible. We wolf roaded our way across Sweden for a week. And we met some people up there that I still am great friends with to this day. Uh, Sam Sylvan, for example, who, who's just about to start racing with us in Ultra 4 Europe. Uh, and I've had so many adventures with him in Africa and other places. And, but we met him there first. And then uh, people, uh, other guys uh, like Richard Iverson and Alan Wormwald. These are guys from the old scenes in land in uh, in the uk and uh, darren mcginnis um, it was a, it was an inspiring trip and we came back from that and this is really where it started we then that was in uh, the summertime early summer and then we got a phone call from uh, from robin from andrash saying hey look there's the belgian national land rover meet in belgium obviously and uh, in september let's meet there so we were like, yeah, let's do it. So we dived across there in uh, two different Land Rovers from the UK. 
And uh, we met up with uh, Andras, and Andras brought another friend of his from uh, Hungary as well. So we had two Hungarian vehicles, a Dutch vehicle, and two British vehicles. And uh, and this year they decided to. It was this is 2000. They decided to put on a X Extreme off-road competition. And it was like, well, and I'm like, whoa, man, do we really want to get involved in X Extreme? And Andras just looks at me and goes, silly boy, Extreme, X Extreme. What is the difference? We race. <laughs> and that was it. It was settled. So we, we, we find ourselves chucked in onto this event. We haven't got a clue what we're doing. We've got some pretty trick vehicles. We've got some uh, two TD5 Defenders that are like nearly new. They're both on 900 16s and head modified turbo diesel engines and got Andrash's things, got air lockers and 8274 winches. And then uh, uh, Ben's car, which I was in, and uh, 8274s. Oh, it was, it was crazy. It was nuts. After two days and two nights, and I don't think we had any sleep at any time, we won this bloody thing. And, Seriously? And we yeah, we won the spirit of the event and won it over and we're like, what the hell happened here? And that was it, hooked. Absolutely. For that was the that was the start of the, the next 20 years of my life. And uh, I came home from there. I sold my current car that, that I had. I had the most beautiful Defender at the time, almost brand new. Sold that. I bought a uh, what's called an SV90. Now, you you guys probably remember the NAS 90s from uh, 1994. So it was a soft top Defender 90, and they came in uh, either white, red, or green. I think it was yellow as well. And they had a Rover V8 in it with a four-speed auto, a full roll cage, and a soft top as standard. That, in fact, I still believe to this day that it was that vehicle that inspired Jeep to make the JK. I really strongly believe that. It was, a pro, it was the first lifestyle four-wheel drive in my eyes. But you got that incredible NAS 90 in America, yeah? Yeah. We got the SV90, which was nearly as good, but not quite. Because instead of a nice big 3.9 V8 and an auto box... We got a smoky, smelly 2.5 turbo diesel with a five-speed manual. It was like, wow, thanks, Land Rover. Now, now, isn't that the one, like, the guys in the United States, want? they wanted to import the diesels. Even though you guys were like, we want to get rid of them, we still couldn't import them. We could only have the gas ones over here. Yeah, you couldn't have them. And then, uh, in fact, the only had NAS 90s for a year because then uh, California state law changed. And that basically made them obsolete. Um, they couldn't conform to the airbag laws. And, uh, and so that's why they're so rare over there. And, I mean, the uh, Defender NAS 90 uh, uh, your side of the pond now. I believe they're over $100,000 if you can find one. Uh, to, uh, strong money for, a, for an old car. Right. But, uh, yes. So I bought this SV90. And uh, they're a limited edition. But I bought it because it had a roll cage as standard. It had a winch as standard. And I started racing this. And, uh, and then from 2000 to 2006, I think it was, I abused, beat, worked, played. I had really no money because I don't really set up my company. So I used to, we have a fencing company. Oh, God. I hope, I hope they don't hear this. <laughs> the estate that I was working on. Well, when I first started work, I worked in a little barn for the first three years. And then 2000, I moved up to my friend's industrial estate, which is an old Second World War army barracks called the Gaza Industrial Estate. And there's about, I don't know, between 14 and 20 businesses up there. And it's brilliant. We're still there to this day. Middle of nowhere. Awesome place. And uh, But one of the places out there is a fencing company. 
And I, I had no money to buy metal or materials. So um, all my rock sliders and all my winch mounts and everything, I used to jump the fence and find fence posts and jump back over the fence and get the grinder out and modify them and change them and change them from fence posts into rock bars and underbody guards and yeah you know that that that's how we rolled it was it was cool <laughs> no that's cool you're in still in the same place i mean you know so many people with through, through that much growth i mean you're talking 23 years of growth that you're still there that's pretty cool yeah yeah well 20 years uh, 20 years in the same place so the first three years we did in the little barn and then i got the opportunity to move up there and, and, and it's been it's been a hell of a lot to see i mean when we moved out there, we had two little bays and uh, that we were working in. And I honestly didn't think we'd ever survive. You know, the money was really tight. And uh, I was still, you know, I was no businessman. I was still only early 20s and really didn't have a clue. And, I, you know, my mentor, Robin, was down in Wales and my dad didn't have a clue about mechanics. So, you know, as, as much of a lovely guy as he is and a great help and inspiration, he couldn't help me with that. So um, I had to learn and uh, it was hard and uh, worked every day and worked every night. And it was tough, but, you know, it was good fun as well. And all my friends were always there. So I always had uh, we were all still early 20s and so none of us had got married at that point. So everyone was still into off-roading. So everyone was, you know, at the weekends, they'd be down my shop with their cars and we'd be cutting bumpers off and modifying the back ends and moving radiators so we could put winches further back and changing electric systems to funky 24 volt systems so that we could uh, yeah, make our winches faster and stronger, extending winch drums and and this is where it all starts to tie into the winch stuff, which is, I know you're trying to get to. <laughs> no, no, I think you're spot on. That's a, you knew where I was going. Cause I'm very intrigued by the, the design of, and, and what you've done. Well, back in those days, I mean, it's uh, it was a case of, you know, every time you tiny little difference made a big difference. So uh, we were doing some cool races down in Wales. I mean, as I say, we didn't have the money for haulers and trailers and stuff. So I used to drive my race car to Wales with all my camping equipment in it. I used to strip the car down. I used to take the whole soft top off, take the back part of the roll cage off, take the spare wheels and tires out. I used to then take all my camping equipment out. And then that was the race car ready to race. The thing is, I couldn't afford to break it because I still had to drive 300 miles back home again after the race. So if we broke CV joints or anything, we had to fix them before we could go home or during the race. I mean, we always used to laugh that, you know, we needed to change a CV joint in the shop. It cost the customer two hours, but when we're in the field and in the mud, we could change it in 15 minutes. <laughs> right, that's That's the book versus reality, right? Yeah, absolutely. But that's where we cut our teeth was in those boggy marshlands down in Wales at a place called Tom's Farm. And we learned so much and we met some incredibly inspiring people, whether it be, uh, you know, the old gentleman, Tony Baskell or the Welsh, the Welsh ace, Gwyn, uh, Gwyn Lewis. And uh, we started learning things. And, and in fact, it was at the Tough Trucks Trophy uh, 2004. Yeah, 2004, I broke a worn 8274 main shaft. We're in this massive bog, mud and peat coming up over the bonnet. And I was with a guy called Paul Church, who's actually doing race star hammers this year. See, it's all linked together. And, right. uh, That's cool. He's, uh, <laughs> and, and my main shaft on the winch just blew apart, just just snapped in half. And, uh, and instead of winning the race... We came fourth, and I was mortified. I just couldn't believe it. I, I, in fact, we might come third. Who cares? I was, I was mortified. And uh, I got home, 
And, uh, and I was like, well, this can't happen again. You know, damn, I, I, I don't want to lose. So I took the shaft out and I looked at it. And uh, we have a couple of villages away from us. There's a, there's a really eccentric guy called Dave. Now, Dave has a most beautiful country cottage. And at the end of his garden, he has a shed. And one side of it, it's not a very big shed. It's probably only not even 30 foot long, probably 20 foot long. One side has a bench with windows that look down across the Eden Valley. And all you can see is the river and trees and fields and sheep. In the background, there's a clock just going tick, tock, tick, <laughs> tock. And on the radio is classical music. He wears his shirts, always usually button, two buttons wrong. Usually has uh, odd socks or if not odd socks, odd shoes. Okay. But the man is a twisted genius. Okay. <laughs> if all else fails, you go to Dave. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest addition, recovery rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a Custom Splice solution. Now, back to the show. And uh, so I went to Dave and I said, Dave, I've got this problem. I've, I've broken the shaft and I need to find a way of fixing this problem. And um, so we sat, we chatted and we talked and we had ideas and everything. Anyway, the long and the short was it. We came up with a new design for this shaft and the shaft was, we supported the gear as well. We did, made lo- we made loads of changes. I said, right, let's go for it, make it. And he said, well, you can have one of them and it's this price. Or you can have 10 of them, and it's this price. And I went, well, the price is exactly the same. He went, exactly. I was like, uh, well, I'll take 10 then. Exactly, he said. So off he went and made 10 of these shafts. All right. And uh, anyway, so I got these shafts back, and we mechanically made them stronger, and we'd uh, engineered them stronger as well, so we changed faults on the shaft. I kept two for myself and I phoned a few friends and said, look, I've got some shafts. Do you want to buy them? And they went, yeah. Then next week, the phone started to ring. Hey, I heard you made some shafts for the 8274. I was like, yeah, yeah, I Can I buy some? I was like, well, no, I only had 10. They were like, oh, well, if you make some more, we'll buy them. So I made another 20. Then I made 50. Then I made 100. Wow. So this is, this is crazy. I love the um, snowball effect. Yeah, uh, uh, but while all this was going on, we were playing with other things as well. So we worked out that on the Warn 8274, the the drum diameter is really big. And we were like, how do we get more power from these winches? 
we're like, well, if we reduce the drum diameter, then obviously that's going to make it more powerful because every wrap of rope on the drum, you know, makes the winch less powerful. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. So we made narrow diameter drums. But the problem with that was that if you had lots of rope on there, you still saw no benefit. No gain. And it was like, ah, yeah, damn, what can we do? What can we do? Oh, I know. What we'll do is we'll make the drum longer, but we use the same amount of rope. Damn, yeah, that way we're going to be on a lower wrap. So what we were doing is we'd come into these really hard areas, and uh, the other guys would be having to winch through. Uh, and it wasn't a case of you could drive it. You, you, I don't care if you had Shannon Campbell's car. You're not driving through there. Okay. So, but most of the teams, because the winches weren't powerful enough, used to have to put a snatch block on the line back to the car so they could then double the power of the winch to winch through. We wouldn't do that. We had our narrow diameter, long winch drum. So we'd pull the rope out, then we'd st- and then stack it on one side of the drum, just as we come on load, we'd switch it to the empty side. So we got maximum power. Hit the go button, and that way we didn't have to use the snatch block. Bring me the trophies, baby. Absolutely works. And that's how we started. So we, uh, and, and this is this is hilarious. You'll see that we offer three different sizes of winch drum. And our, we have the short, which is 18274, 10-inch drum. Then the next one up for that is the plus 76, the plus three inch. Now, this has become an industry standard. Anybody who makes winches copies that size. Okay? Okay. And it's the size that we come out with. And the only reason is that size has become the industry standard. And this is the God's honest truth is on my SV90 that I was racing at the time, I'd made the bumper for it. I wanted to put a longer drum in it. And the longest drum I could put in there without having to remake my bumper was three inches. And that's where it came from. And that's where it is. (laughs) <laughs> that's where it is so now it makes me tickles me you see these winches coming out of china you see it coming out of germany and great other places in britain and all this and it's like yeah guys well done you just copied what i did 20 years ago <laughs> and you know they say you know that's kind of the sincerest form of flattery right you know the knockoff but, oh, but don't get me wrong i'm not bitching on it i just think it's really funny but it's i mean i think that's a cool story to tell that you can basically back test the dna of that whole design to exactly jim marsden in great britain doing his giggle pin winches because it fit in this size box it fit in this size bumper yeah Yeah. Uh, and then it started to move again we needed more power we needed more of this and there was this uh, a wonderful guy called david bowyer who won who uh, at the time was running a company called goodwinch he actually retired about two years ago and he was a massive innovator and he brought in bigger motors and better solenoids and all of this kind of good stuff and we're all using his kit and he had these big motors called the bow motor two now most people these days would know them as a bow motor three but they were actually a bow motor two back then, and they were much, much bigger. And this motor I had on my vehicle was incredible, and it, it was the reason that we used to do so well at these events. You know, it was just so much power. We're using 24 volt through it, and it was awesome. But he all of a sudden announced that he couldn't get them anymore, and I was like, holy sugar. And I could see my winch business disappearing. I'd been working hard on it. All of a sudden, if people couldn't get stronger motors, they wouldn't buy my main shafts or anything. So I was like, okay, I need to find another big motor. So I started spending the money that I had playing with old starter motors and doing all this kind of stuff, trying to make bigger motors, going to motor winding companies. And God, I went all over the place and I couldn't find anything that worked. 
And then uh, we sat down one day and we went, do you know what? These are crazy. These, these motors are like three times, four times the price of the motors that we're a you know, standard motor. Why don't we just use two standard motors? Surely that's just, they're cheap. They're easy to use. We just use two motors. And we're like, but how are we going to fit them? Back to my man, Dave. So off I go down to Dave into, uh, into his quirky workshop and sat there, put two motors on the bench with the top housing. Said, I need to fit that to that with that. He looked at me and he went, hmm. So we had a cup of tea and we chewed it over and then came back and chewed it over again a couple of times. And we came up with this funky adapter plate and we bolted it on. And uh, it was incredible. Suddenly two motors on a standard Warren 8274 top housing. It was mental. And uh, off we went and, and started testing them. And it was mind blowing. People started to hear that I'd done this and they started sending me their top housings for modification. And uh, so I started doing these. And, uh, and the, one of the biggest events in the year, the Argyle Forest Challenge, was due any time. And it was uh, two vehicles in each team, okay, racing over uh, two days. And the lineup was, I think the top three teams or the top four teams had, both cars had these modified 8274 winches on them. And it was like, wow, okay, here we go. Made a difference. And, uh, yeah, well, this is it. I was like, oh, man, this is going to be incredible. We'll see what happens. And the best guys were there, you know. All the big hitters were playing. Yeah, it's going to be incredible. Every single winch was broken, either by the beginning of day two or the end of day one. Every single one. All the top housing gears had just shit themselves. They couldn't cope with the extra load, and they just blew the teeth off and smashed the bearings to pieces. And oh, it was like, oh, my God. And uh, I'm, I'm done. Um, you know, these people are all going to be screaming at me. But you know the amazing thing? And this was the amazing thing. All of those cars broke. Okay, all of those winches broke. Our domination of the event with those vehicles before they broke was so total that those teams still took the top three places. Okay. <laughs> so, so it was like this euphoria and also this, oh, my God, I'm going to be bankrupt tomorrow. So <laughs> it was crazy. And so I had to do, you know, I said, look, I'm really sorry. And you know, I, we didn't know this was going to happen. And so um, I ran away with my tail between my legs with lots of promises that we'd fix this and sort it out and went home and went, oh my God, what am I going to do? I was just having this, just this moment, you know, as you're telling that story, thinking about, you know, like that's Shannon Campbell when he shows up at the first, you know, King of the Hammers with a, an IFS car in 2009. It, it was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what is this, this game changer? And there it is. Only it worked out, I guess it didn't work out that much different from him. He blew a transmission up, and they changed it, and then he kind of got a disqualification. And But it was still historic, right? And yours is yeah, the same, yeah, same kind of uh, dot, dot, dot. It was not optimal, but it was historic. Yeah, it, it, it was an amazing moment, and it changed everything. But then all of a sudden, I had this problem on my hands. I had unleashed Pandora's box. Everybody saw the potential of what was there. Everybody at that race at that time realized that we were on the pinnacle of something really important. So I ran away back to Kent from Scotland with my tail between my legs and sat down and thought and thought and thought and thought. There was a guy who'd been coming into my shop called Dale. Now, Dale was a uh, work for a company called Quaif Engineering. Now, Quaif Engineering, you might have heard of them over there. They make racing gearboxes and they make racing differentials for rally cars and all this kind of good stuff. And they make gearboxes for GT40s, you know, high-end engineering. Well, Dale said to me, he said, well, 
why don't you come down and talk to my boss? You know, it's, it's a gearbox. Okay. I'm like, yeah, why not? So I went and had a chat to uh, to, to Michael Quaife, and, uh, and I walked in there and the big shiny offices and amazing workshops packed with the latest, most modern machinery. And, uh, and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm a real little fish here. So I sort of took my cigarette packet drawings, you know, drawn out a bit of paper in there and went, please, sir, can you look at my drawings, sir? And he looked at them and he went, tell you what, son, I'll give you a call in a week. I was like, okay. So he phoned me and I went back out there for a meeting and he showed me some designs based on what I'd given them. And I was like, oh my God. And he was like, yeah, we can do this. All right. We got it. And I'm like, wow. And he said, okay, well, this is the initial cost for the, uh, to make them, uh, to make the, uh, the molds for the castings. And I was like, Oh my God, there was numbers on that piece of paper I'd never seen before. And uh, I was like, shit, where do I go from here? And then I was like, ah, oh, right, great, thanks. Um, yeah, so we come up with a plan and I signed my life away and we ran away again going, shit, how am I going to pay for this? But we did. And the first 25 twin motor giggle pin top housings, full production, cast units with billet gears, billet end plates, uh, cast bodies came off the line. And they were just a game changer. They were just, there was nothing else out there like it. It was, you know, it was just mind blowing. But then we kept learning because we'd copied the, the ratios from the A274. We very quickly realized that these weren't fast enough. The other problem was, is that the A274 is actually so incredibly agricultural. There's so few bearings in it and the tolerances are so loose that it actually runs incredibly freely. So it gets that maximum power from that single motor. All of a sudden I created this top house and had these big bearings in and, and uh, massive gears. And, and we suddenly found they weren't as fast as the standard worn stuff. And we were scratching our heads going, well, why aren't they fast? That's fast. And we just realized there was this huge load, uh, this huge rolling mass that we had with these bigger bearings and extra bearings and, and everything. So, yeah, was, we, we were having to learn as we went really quickly. Uh, so it was amazing, absolutely amazing. It's kind of cool the trials and tribulations you went through kind of from your in-service, uh, you know, something of business development, yes. you know, your, your prototyping, your... Yeah, it's the same as the same all the way through. I mean, the, the thing is, is that like back then it was seat of the pants stuff. I mean, it really was. The ideas came forth. We made it. We went. We tested it. We tried it and put it out there. Now everything's a little bit more, you know, we now work in CAD and SolidWorks and everything is, you know, what I'm working on today. You won't see that probably for 24 months by the time we've prototyped it, productionized it and everything like that. So things have really changed. I mean, back then I could have something in from an idea to, from uh, an idea to uh, prototype to conception in less than three, four months. Now that's just not possible. It's, uh, and particularly to get stuff to the price point that people want to pay for it. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a massive change and shift in how we do things, but we are producing some incredible stuff and, uh, and pretty much the whole way through our, uh, all our product line, you've got that, that learning right the way through. It started as a problem in a field or in a bog somewhere. And then we've taken that problem and we've turned it upside down and turned it into something that now is a piece of off-road art that will never let you down. And, uh, and that's what we take pride in doing. In, in fact, this is cool. 
I actually had a winch coming for service this week from a customer in Scotland. And I scraping the mud off it and getting everything, putting it through the cleaning tanks. And that's the other thing. I mean, back in the day, we didn't have cleaning tanks. Now we have these amazing multi-thousand pound cleaning tanks that just strip all the crap off for us. But uh, it's incredible. And I unveiled the part, the serial number. The serial number on that housing is 7001, which is the very first production twin motor giggle pin housing. How cool is that? And it just came back in. Just came back, literally came in last week for a service. And it's still operational. And all the bearings in it are like brand new still, uh, which is amazing because the thing's full of like water and snot and everything. But I don't need to change those bearings in the top housing still. They're incredible. Amazing. I think that speaks volumes. Maybe very proud. Yeah, maybe very proud. Has there been any uh, design iterations between that point in time, between that unit 7001 and what you would see today? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, night and day. Absolute night and day. I mean, with the the those first housings, they then morphed into what we became the 80 series winches. So we started designing whole bottom ends for winches. Uh, and originally, we started using worn gears, and then we started making our own gears. And, and it was uh, the, the GP80 series of winches were incredible. And they ran right the way from 2007, right the way up until 2016. And uh, I think we built something in the region of, I don't know, seven, eight hundred of those. And most of those are still in operation around the world today. Um, in fact, that's one of, if I, <laughs> if you were going to say, is there a flaw with your business plan? It's yes, we make stuff too good. It keeps going. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is good. I mean, that is the name that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we take great pride in that. And then in, um, 2016, I was with Quay for the whole period of time from sort of 2006, 2007, right the way out to 16. And they were doing, I, I, again, I'd, I'd be running in there with bits of paper with my designs on and they would, uh, they'd get a grown up to draw it in CAD and then uh, uh, and do all of those things, which is cool. But we needed to take control of that design process. So in 2015, we invested in uh, SolidWorks technology, put a design studio in, uh, trained some staff, including myself. And we started to redraw and redesign every single product in our catalog. And, uh, and then the 100 series winches were born. And uh, which is still current to this day. And here we are, about three years now, we've been three and a bit years, we've been producing those. And we've now done something in the region of about 650 units. Yeah, with just that one. So we've actually overtaken in three years our entire what we sold of those winches before. But but on top of that, we've also got single motor winches and all kinds of other stuff as well going on. So uh, yeah, it's, it's full on. It's really cool. Kind of the first time I really, they landed on kind of my radar because what you guys do in Europe is kind of, what you guys do in Europe, right? You know, here in the States, we, <laughs> we have this view. You guys do things a little bit different. You know, you do it your way. And, uh, this is the crazy thing. You see, America is in its own, particularly Northern America is in its own little bubble of off-road. Okay. And I don't mean that in a horrible way, but genuinely you are. If we go, come out away from Northern America, in Northern America, you have ultra four and you have kind of desert racing. And then you have a bit of trail wheeling i think is the best way you don't really have any other competitions outside of sort of that ultra four and desert racing there isn't sort of any uh, correct me if i'm wrong you don't have sort of well we're rock bouncers we've got rock bouncers oh yeah yeah sorry rock bouncing yeah yeah i knew you didn't want to forget those guys no no don't forget them they'll get, whoop our asses yeah i was gonna say they'll kill, come come around and kill me 
But that's kind of your race culture there. You come away from that, and then if we look at Russia, we look at Australasia, we look at Asia, we look at Africa, we look at Europe, and there's a, uh, a an off-road scene that is very much evolved around uh, winching and uh, and sort of multiple day events, etc. And pretty much all of those other, uh, and even South America, in fact, uh, there's some pretty big scenes in uh, in some of the countries down there. They, they do winch challenges and those kinds of things. A lot of this was all born from. Uh, certain events back in the 80s and 90s. Did you ever guys ever come across something called the Camel Trophy? Oh yeah, I remember those. Like uh, they'd be the, the like the yellow Land Rovers with yeah. the with the like the can you know uh, the Camel cigarettes, right? And and they that's had it. the well today you'd see them and you'd be like, oh, that's an you know that's a glorified Overlander, right? It has the roof yeah, rack and the and the guy what wires. What, what do you call that's those it. tree savers? Rushcuts. Brush guards. Brush guards. Okay, yeah, and yeah, they just guards. direct the limb up the and over. Yeah, that's it. They push the uh, they push the leaves out out of the way, and uh, and that, that's what they're for. So that's that. It was the adventure, and in fact, it wasn't actually Camel cigarettes. I always thought it was, but it wasn't. It's was a different Camel brand, but who knew? It's a different Camel. It's a different Camel. Who knew? And uh, anyway, someone's going to correct me on that. So hey, we're, we're waiting for the internet I, to lie up. But the uh, <laughs> I get facts like really close, but then so far away. You know, like. I, <laughs> In this perception, like, well, I, I bought the rumor, you know, I'm going to sell the fact. Yeah, exactly. No, we, I, I get that all the time at KOH. We get, we, we'll say something. There's some, dude, some guy will come up to the stage and go, hey, man, that's completely wrong. It's like, oh, sorry about that. So we'll put it right later. But uh, yeah, going back, but this camel trophy, these were the adventurers. So basically they took like 40 odd vehicles and they put crews in them from uh, different countries around the world. And these crews had to qualify to be able to get to the camel trophy. And then they'd chuck them into a jungle in the uh, middle of Africa or in South America. And they had to cross a certain amount of terrain and they had to build bridges to get these vehicles across rivers. And it was the whole off-road adventure. And, and everyone was hooked on it and everyone wanted their own off-road adventure. And so these events started popping up around the world. Outback Challenge Australia, Malaysian Rainforest Challenge, the Borneo Safari, okay? And other things like Croatia Trophy, Transylvania Trophy. All of these things were wanted to be replicants of those camel trophy days that's what people wanted it was a, it was amazing and so all of these events started popping up to give people the opportunity of adventure and uh, and that's where these events all started to, to come from and the great thing was of course back in the 90s we could go and buy a Land Rover, buy a Jeep, you could buy a Nissan, you could buy a Toyota, all of these vehicles that were readily modifiable. You could buy a winch off the shelf, you could put some big tires on it, some aftermarket lockers from ARB, and uh, and go and be an off-road superhero. And that's what people did. And that's kind of what, what you guys are kind of into, though. I mean, that's kind of where you've kind of driven all the trophies that are in your trophy case are kind of around that, you know, like the Croatia trophy, any of the rainforest stuff that you've been into. I mean, that's kind of that when I mentioned in the, the very beginning, like the winningest uh, driver involved with ultra four, you have so many trophies in the trophy case from these, I don't know what to call them. Some of them are definitely winch events, but trophy right. But they're, they're trophy raid events, they're winch challenge events, they're all of that. So let's 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 start the basics. What the hell is a winch challenge or what is a trophy raid? Well, trophy raids, I first started reading about these in the 90s. 
uh, the Transylvania trophies, this uh, the Transylvania trophies, uh, Croatia trophy. Okay, and what these are are seven day off road extravaganzas. Okay, you have roadbook navigation, so like rally style navigation, and you are in immense terrain. So we're talking like the wilds of Croatia, Romania, Poland, Germany, wherever. Okay, it's irrelevant, but you're in the wild. You're given a road book. You can be doing one minute, you can be doing 60 mile an hour down the track. The next, you've got a river that's 100 feet or 200 feet or, or wide. Deal with it. Come around the next hundred, another couple of kilometers, there's a cliff in front of you. Deal with it. And that's what trophy raids are all about. And trophy raids, they can be traveling from a point A to B, or they can be, um, and usually are, or they can be circuits, or like the Croatia Trophy, we can do like two days of roadbook. Then we'll have like a, a day of special stages where we might have to work together with other teams and bits and pieces and, and to explore that team spirit thing that happens as well. So there's many different aspects to it, like the, the Breslau Rally, for example, we're covering nearly 2,000 kilometers over seven days, and the terrain is gnarly. I mean, proper gnarly. We're talking full of water jumps that are tank traps. You know, these are on military, some of this is on military sites, so there could be 60 ton battle tanks who've just gone through these water holes a day or so before us, and we're hurling four wheel drives in there. And, uh, and it's fair to say that a fair few just don't come back out. <laughs> so that's the trophy raid style stuff. Seven days of between four and seven days of racing. Okay. Then we have winch challenge. Now, winch challenge is exactly what it says. It's winch challenge. So we'll be having uh, punch cards usually attached to the vehicle. And we are trying to get close enough to an orienteering punch that will be put on, I don't know, rocky out cliff or up onto a tree. And there'll be a preset route that you've got to follow to get to these. And there'll be time stages or there'll be uh, punches scattered over a wilderness area. And you have to collect as many of these as possible. Sometimes they'll be coordinated by GPS. Sometimes there'll just be a map at the beginning. And you'll have to, I mean, back in the days, we didn't have camera phone so you'd be drawing the maps out on hand and uh, and then chasing off after these things and trying to find them um, but invariably the terrain would be incredibly brutal and not able to drive so driven forward driving is not going to take place so you'd have to use your winches to be able to achieve these punches and some of these things are so bad that we'll be using a front winch a rear winch and sometimes even a center winch as well to be able to pendulum our vehicles up into there to get to these things that's what chris bowler i mean chris bowler he shocked me on this like i guess i i needed to walk my mind through one of these competitions and you know with any competition the human we're going to make things harder and harder and harder and he walked me through like they the punch that you used was up a tree or up between two trees and you had to winch (laughs) off of two trees and pull your vehicle all four tires off the ground winching it up a tree to get your you know the your punch card that was mounted to the roll bar close enough to the punch to punch it and then lower the vehicle down and you could go on about your day yeah, I mean, or if you really get some really horrible, nasty, sadist ones, they, what they'll do is they'll pin them on the floor. So you have to roll your car onto its side to hit it, okay, but you're controlling it with your winches. So you roll the car literally on its side to get the punch card, and then put to get the punch, then roll your car back over again, and off you go. But these are all variations on themes, and and uh, and these are all particularly the trophy raid events are, are adventure events, okay? And I've met some of my closest and dearest friends even to the, you know at these events because there's unfortunately there is a an element of risk and unfortunately people 
sadly do get hurt. And unfortunately, loss of life does happen and has taken place. And nasty injuries have happened. We're playing with big toys and you know stuff does go wrong occasionally. So there's a lot of safety elements there, but... And it's also, I think that's that kind of danger edge that is also uh, appealing as well. I think uh, people, they want that element of risk when they're racing, I think. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's also what attracts people to desert racing and to Ultra 4 as well. There is that that, that excitement of it being dangerous. And it's the same with Trophy Raid and, uh, and, and with Winch Challenge as well. Well, I want to see that, like, added to uh, the UTV class, like the punch card where it's bolted to the ground somewhere, <laughs> and, and they roll up and they have to flip their side-by-side uh, -side on its side, punch it, and then flip it back. I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah, mate, it's, 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 to be fair, I mean, there's a guy called Alex Parpotis and Philon Parpotis, and a few years ago, do you, do you remember the very first Razors? They bought one of those and they brought it to me and they said, right, we want a kick-ass fast winch on this thing. So I modified a... Uh, a low-line Chinese winch for them. And, uh, and this thing used to have a retrieval rate, the same speed as fast walking, and uh, bolted to the back of a UTV and then had a tube that went out the front of the thing. It was, it was, it was amazing. And uh, they were doing very well at the winch challenges with it because no one expected these little golf carts to turn up and do that and uh, with these winches. And, uh, and then after that happened for a couple of months, it, uh, the organizers started to put in some pretty nasty traps for these uh, little golf carts. <laughs> they couldn't do that anymore, or certainly not as easy. So but, rightfully uh, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the UTVs, I mean, this is the crazy thing. We come to America, and UTVs are like locusts. They're everywhere. You come to Europe, and um, you're going to struggle to find them unless you go to certain events. And, uh, and some events, particularly Germany and Poland, there's lots of them out there. But they're very, very localized in the areas that they are. But they're getting more and more popular. And what we're starting to see, actually, is some of our older generation of drivers are now crossing over to them because they've got older vehicles and they, they don't want to spend, you know, $100,000, $150,000 pounds building new cars when they can go and spend 30000 on a UTV, spend ten putting some cool stuff on it and go and have a great time with their friends for seven days. And so that's starting to really grow over here. We're starting to see a growth in that UTV market. And, uh, and I hope it can. Yeah, I, exactly. And I really hope that happens. That that's They're going to save us. They're going to save our motorsport in many ways. Uh, I mean, it's getting tough over here now. Uh, the environmentalists are starting to close us down, whereas we used to go to Poland and well, particularly Germany. We used to race for a few days in Germany and then we used to go into Poland. Uh, Germany is basically a shut shop now. Uh, which is really sad. Um, some of the other countries are now starting to shut down as well. It's, it's getting difficult to find areas where we can truly do what I'd call wild off-roading, where we're having to go push further east or push further south. So, we're, you know, Croatia's even becoming tough as well. It's getting harder to get licenses over there. And, uh, you know, you can't just rock up and go off-roading, you know. So it's, you know, my advice to anyone out there who wants to get involved in Trophy Road, do it now because it's not going to be many years before those environmentalists start shutting us down. And that will be a very sad day indeed. I mean, we're absolutely worried about that here in the States. Any of us that have been involved in off-road for, you know, 20 years, we've seen those happen. We saw Teleco, you know, get shut down. We saw you where get shut down. We've seen all of these places we've seen, you know, out West, uh, swaths upon swaths upon swaths of, uh, of land closures uh, from the BLM. We've seen trails get closed down. It's it's a global issue. It's 
It is, yeah. But I don't get it personally. I I strongly believe, uh, having lived in the countryside all my life, that you can take a barrow, a piece of forest, and if you drive a vehicle through it and the the vehicle turns over the soil, that's where you're going to find the insects first and that's where you're going to find the birds. And then when you find the birds, that's where you'll find the predators and that's where you find everything else. But you, you by turning, we don't have, back in the days gone by, we had big animals that roamed these forests that dug up the ground constantly and kept this life cycle going on. We don't have the wild boar anymore walking around. We don't have the bison or the cows and the stuff like this that did all of that. Those four-wheel drives actually replace those, and I, I strongly believe that in the use correctly that these vehicles actually do good to our forests. And uh, by turning over that ground, by moving that multiple leaf mulch that's been down on the ground for years, turning it up and bringing those bulbs back up to the surface that have been buried for ages, it's uh, you know I, 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 that's something I strongly believe. I just don't know how to prove that in to be able to put that into words that environmentalists will understand, and I don't think I ever will stand chance they've got their own agendas and they certainly don't cross mine stay tuned your talent tank isn't full yet do you know what the entire 2020 ultra four racing 4400 class king of the hammers podium had in common branding motorsports custom machine this small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the Talent Tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Brandon hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5 8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Brandon my ideas, and they made them a reality. Between the Brannick lines of Forge 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Brannick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small. Their amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brennick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy Pre-Runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannick axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannick, 260-467-1808, or on the web at BrannickMotorsports.com. Brannick is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now, back to the show. I want to jump back just a little, little bitty bit. You brought up, you know, as we were talking winching, which I'm truly fascinated by, you're talking about uh, these guys that brought you a UTV to, to kind of retrofit, which is on their <laughs> UTV. Jumping even further back, Giggle Pink kind of first hit the radar for me was Ben Napier, the, the Aussie 
Ben had, yeah. had had a bomber and he wanted he had to have a giggle pin on it and it was like this big deal and Randy Slauson saying yeah I can't fit that big huge winch winch into my chassis he ultimately did right I think it had and then no he didn't oh he it no, didn't. didn't he ended up putting it in no. the pinhole in the panel the pinhole got yeah. it. And then well, we're, well, this is this is really cool because Ben contacted us. And now uh, I'm a massive fan of Australian off-road racing, particularly their winch challenge scene. Now, let's go back to 2007. OK, the birth of King of the Hammers. And let's look at Australia off your guys radar entirely. But let's talk about what they're running. They are running modified Nissan patrols. OK, they are running bypass shocks. They're running coilover suspension. They are running 6.2 and up to seven liter engines with superchargers. OK, and hidden speeds of over 100 mile an hour across their deserts. OK, they're doing uh, events like the Outback uh, Challenge, OK, which were seven day races. Okay, working around doing huge mileages and racing across incredible terrain. Okay, and their vehicles, dare I say, were far more advanced. No, I'm going to say it. They were far more advanced at that time than the vehicles that first arrived at King of the Hammers. But they had a reverse. They had a change in policy by the government, which basically stopped off-road racing off-road. They are motorsport off-road. And so what was this booming motorsport in Australia? Just suddenly literally just went, boom, and just petered out overnight. Uh, and the world lost. I mean, I, I personally believe it's Australia has never recovered from it. And I remember looking back to those guys where it'd be Ronan Canavan, Kim Bolton, Norm Walters, Birdie, and oh, God knows how many else. I used to watch the videos for hours. They're amazing guys to watch. And, uh, and they were the guys who you'd first see the Maxis Trepidors on and they were running the Creeper Crawlers and all other things. And they were doing these crazy ideas with Nissan axles and, and all of this stuff and, uh, and making that King suspension work for them really well in an environment that's completely alien to anything that those shock absorbers had been thought about before. And, uh, and it was a real shock that kind of beat that. Well, here's the thing, Jim, that I think that I find, you know, this is – as you know, majority of the listeners of the show and a majority of, you know, the ultra four population that are fans were here in the United States. We're getting a story from a Brit you about the, the Aussies on a completely other continent. So we've got three continents involved here. That is this cautionary tale of something that could very easily and very quickly happen here with having yeah. off-road shut down here. And we should, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that, us Americans, we are, we are, we are, that the Brits know it, the Aussies know it, the Aussies have firsthand witnessed it, and here we are, we kind of need to get our, for lack of better words, our proverbial shit together here in the States when it comes to our land use or risk following in the steps of the Aussies. I, I think if there's one thing that, to, that 2020 has shown us, you know, expect the unexpected because, you know, who would have thought that the world would shut down for a virus? You know, it's, I mean, who would have thought that's even possible to, to, you know, someone said, can you turn the internet off? Well, this year we turned the world off. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> it's, well, it's nuts. And, and, and so I know we got off a little bit of a tangent there, but where I was initially going with Ben Napier was the yeah. next segue being Levi Shirley. Levi yeah. had came and done a bunch of Europe stuff and he came back and puts a giggle pin in his Campbell car. 
Exactly. I'm just going to cut back to Ben for a minute. There was a moment with Ben Napier that I thought was going to change my life. There was uh, in 2014, Ben Napier turned up in his pedal fab car and, uh, you know, everybody had heard about it. Everybody seen everything. Ben was very vocal about the fact that this was the future of Ultra 4 and he rocked up and uh, he very famously dived in to backdoor first lap. He's come in there and there's Derek West is winching on the winch wall and there's four cars behind him waiting to go on the left-hand line. Ben Napier drives straight up to the right-hand line. He has a game plan. His co-driver jumps out. He runs up over the top and hooks the winch line. Derek West is still winching. Ben connects up the winch rope, gets the go from his co-driver, hits the button, winches up onto the top. Derek West is still winching, gets to the top, stows the winch cable. Derek West is still winching and drives off. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I'm just sitting there waiting for the phone to ring. Not a single phone call. <laughs> no one realized, they, they just assumed that Derek didn't know how to run a winch. <laughs> I don't know. But it was like, I, I thought that was it. I thought that was going to be my breakthrough in America. I thought, here we go. No, not a single phone call. It was hilarious. Yeah, but it just, it was an interesting moment because Ben came from, although Ben wasn't a winch challenge guy himself, Ben took that winch challenge mentality and brought it to Ultra 4 and made it work in that thing. And, and yet, the, the thing is, people in America are a little bit scared of that because we all saw Jason Shearer. Do you remember where Jason chose to winch back door? Shannon nailed it and won. So I think after that, everyone was scared to reach for a winch. And and uh, I think that was a, a very seminal moment in, in, in off-road history, personally, that, that little jewel there. And now we're kind of in this situation where I call it like almost the Chinese water torture of King of the Hammers is <laughs> the trails continue to get easier and easier and easier. And the yeah. bypasses continually can to be accepted as, you know, the fastest way through the trail is the acceptable way. One of the things I, you know, don't enjoy at the moment is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, I constantly have people coming to me saying, hey, come and look at this guy's tracker trail. Hey, come and look at this guy's tracker trail. Um, you know, this guy's clearly off course and this guy's off course and everything. It's like, dude, you know, I'm not a referee. I'm an, I'm a, I'm an announcer. You know, you, if you've got an issue with someone, you need to go and speak to race ops. And um, uh, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, there's, with our kind of racing, there is a... Um, we're, we're all gentlemen and ladies the race. Uh, I'd like to think that. And I'd like to think that nobody would intentionally cheat. I, I, you know, why would you do that? You're cheating yourself. But um, equally, I know that, you know, it's people, I don't know, take the wrong trail because or they maybe they misread it. I don't know. Perhaps I'm trying to make excuses for people. But you're right. There needs to be something done about some of the bypasses that are appearing in these hammer trials, how you do that on public land. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm fully with you there. I don't know what the solution is, but I, I'm sitting there thinking back from uh, the standpoint of being a winch manufacturer, you know, winch modifier, you know, uh, aftermarket to the winch aftermarket. And you're like, wow, uh, my market is somewhat drying up from the, from as far as the, the United States guys are concerned <laughs> because they keep making the, uh, the competitions, easier and easier and easier i don't i think there's also a lot of the fact that it's not just getting it's not e just easier the cars and the crews are getting better oh for sure the best off-road racer the best ultra four off-road racers in the world are american done that's it final you know it's we've got some great guys over here uh, we can really kick ass on our day but, you know, when you've got Lauren Healy racing Jason Shearer, racing Eric Miller, racing Jason, uh, racing uh, Levi Shirley, 
uh, Raul Gomez and Marcus and God, the list goes on on a day-to-day basis, okay, five or six times a year, the level of these guys is just getting better and better and better and better. And uh, and as I say, when we're now sitting there and it's not so much, we're not changing cars to make the difference, we're changing geometry to make the difference on all existing cars, then you know that we're reaching the pinnacles of what we can achieve. And, um, and I know that there'll, somebody will come along and blow the doors off, and I think they're probably going to do it with electric but who knows and who knows when that we, we talk about it right some hybrid yeah well you know jim we've talked about a, a bunch of things you know as far as like competition has gone as far as vehicle designs you know engineering designs on multiple continents all around the globe but the, one of the things that i want to get to with you and i think a lot of people want to know is you've announced for the mint 400 this year you've <laughs> been the king of the hammers announcer for a bunch of years You've raced King of the Hammers as a 4,400 competitor. How did the the door get opened or, or you put your foot in for this uh, announcing gig? How did you graduate into uh, a microphone in your hand and being oh, wow. so well-versed? <laughs> well, I first raced Hammers in 13 um, and a crazy accident. Pierre Asoni won the very first King of the Valleys in Europe, okay, which was the our first ever Ultra 4 race. And him and Rob Butler, Rob Butler came second. They won the opportunity. Dave Cole said, bring your car, stick them in the container. We're taking them to America. You are racing hammers. And they were like, wow. Well, Rob's car was like a little moon buggy thing. And he said, look, you know, I'm not in a place where I want to go to hammers right now. So they said, well, Jim, do you want it? And I was like, well, yeah, damn right I do. So I phoned my mate Wayne Smith in Australia. I said, uh, uh, and uh, I said, come on, we're, you, you up for hammers? We'll go 50-50 each. Let's make this happen. It's a once in a lifetime. So long story short, we ended up at hammers with all our fantastic crew. And we were like rabbits in headlights, man. We didn't know what to expect. And, uh, and it was crazy. And long story short, we won the EMC, then got disqualified and then failed to finish the main event the next day. And then uh, the next year we went back and we were racing in the spec class in the Odyssey Cup. And again, we had a fantastic time, qualified second behind Shannon Campbell in the spec class cars, then smoked him going out into the desert, which is one of my favorite moments of my life, I think. <laughs> and uh, yeah, anyway, he'll tell you every day that the suspension shit, but it was shit on my car as well, I'll tell you. Um, the, <laughs> the, uh, anyway, we blew up, we were leading that race and then uh, we blew a motor and at uh, 17 miles. Yeah, the, the same story everyone else says. I was winning and then... <laughs> yeah, up until... <laughs> pound for every time I heard that. But uh, yeah, anyway, so that was my Hammers race history. Then the next year I went back and uh, Dave Cole, who's become a good friend at this point, he said, look, Jim, would you just jump on stage and just give a bit of colour? Just tell a driver's story of what it's like for these guys out there. I was like, yeah, no problem at all. So... I went up on stage in the afters, you know, I forget what aspects of the race it was now. And Chad Wrangler was on stage. And, uh, and you know, I was watching Chad and Pam and all these people. They're, they're heroes, you know. Like, wow. So I've gone up there and Chad's like, oh, man, thank God you're here. And I'm like, um, what do you mean? I'm just here to help out. And he's like, yeah, man. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I feel really ill. I, I've got to go. And he starts taking his microphones off out of his jumper and stuff and shoving them up my shirt and everything. And and, uh, and I'm like, really? And he said, yeah, man, uh, you know, you've got this. You'll be fine. 
And I'm like, okay, right, okay. And then all of a sudden I've got the earphones on. Uh, and I get this little voice in my ears going, hey, is that Jim? And I'm like, hi, yeah, who's this? He said, hey, my name's Tim. I'm in production out the back. And uh, welcome to King of the Hammers. I'm like, well, thank you, my friend. Yeah, this is this is a great place to be. And uh, he said, uh, right, yeah, just take it nice and easy. We're at commercial break at the moment. We're going to be coming back in about eight seconds. When we come back, I want you to welcome the crowd back to Hammertown and then toss it down to Miles' in the pits. And that's in three, two, one. I'm like, what the mother of God. <laughs> You're it. I was just it's like, you. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm, I might become a – this, this got me a sink and swim time. Sink or swim. So I stood there. I looked out across the crowd. In front of me, I don't know, a thousand people, something like that. I haven't got a clue. It was just a blur. I just picked up the microphone and I just went, good afternoon, Hammer Town, and welcome back to the 2015 Nitto King of the Hammers Power by Optima Batteries. Miles is down in the pits and he's got some news for us. Miles, what do you got? I couldn't stop shaking. Fire. Like I've heard you say it a million <laughs> times since. I couldn't stop shaking for about 10 minutes. The, the other guy who was supposed to have been on stage comes back up on stage with two drinks I went, oh, hi, how are you? And I'm like sitting there going, shit, man. Um, I was up there for, I don't know, a few hours, came off stage, and I was just like, that is the best thing ever. It was amazing. And uh, then Dave said, hey, you come back next year? And I was like, yeah, oh, I'd love to. And then, um, yeah, that was mental. And then uh, three years ago, the Martelli brothers uh, reached out to me and said, um, hey, would you like to come and commentate uh, at our little race called the MIM 400? And I'm like, the MIM 400, I, I know that. Now, you're going to laugh, okay? I'm a Brit, okay? So I didn't really know what the MIM 400 was. I'd heard of it, but I didn't really kind of get how important it is in the grand scheme of things. You, look, you've got to remember that this is the same Brit that I think it was in 2015, I was on stage with uh, Emmy Hall and uh, this guy called Rob Mack was brought up on stage. And I'm like, Emmy Hall is melting. She's absolutely like, oh my God, it's Rob Mack. And I'm sitting there going, who the hell is Rob Mack? I haven't got a Scooby-Doo who he is. <laughs> Not a clue. Not did I realize that he's the probably the, uh, the greatest off-road racer of all time with the most trophies ever. And uh, so Emmy put me right on that one pretty quick. And it was kind of the same with the Mint. I had no idea of the importance of it. And uh, and then so all of a sudden I find myself in Vegas calling for a desert race. And I, I must apologize to my family, actually, because we spent the two weeks before the Mint Fort where in fact, I only had a week or so to, to do any research. I knew nothing about desert racing. I, I knew Robbie Gordon. I knew another couple of names, but that was it. So we spent the next couple of weeks, three years ago, I spent two weeks watching YouTube videos of desert racing, trying to find out about all of these people and what they've won. And I very soon found out that you needed fististics a long time before he arrived. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Farner, Austin Fish Farner. <laughs> yeah. You're hitting the strides here that I think uh, it, it has become painfully obvious to me from listening to you announce and listening to Miles is your voices are different. You have a different voice. So when you're only hearing the audible, you still know there's still this comfort level of who you're, who's talking to you. And it's, Hey, when I hear your voice, I know, Hey, that's Marsden. He knows what he's talking about. I can trust what he's saying to me. Miles, uh, same something, way. 
something that me and Miles, I mean, Miles is, uh, uh, he is, Shannon Welsh and Miles Hisselquist know more about ultra four racing than any other human beings on the planet. That's a fact. And working with both of them is an absolute joy. And uh, I mean, my other, don't get me wrong, my other amounts are incredible as well, but wonderful, wonderful human beings. But Miles's knowledge is vast. And he's he can glance at a car sideways and know who it is and tell you all about their life, who they were, who their family were, who they used to race with, and what they do as a day job. Okay. And what flavor of beer they drank the night before. Like, exactly it, it, my, miles knows that he puts in his homework you know yeah exactly but we we do the same and i take a great deal of pride from working yeah. with miles and uh, uh, but we're also toss that to each other as well and uh, we're always backing each other up it's it's just you know when you just get that you meet that person and you just bounce off them miles is that guy i bounce off uh, and we never tread on each other when we're working together. It's, uh, it's. I, in fact, I, I'm like this with, with Ricky Johnson as well. We, we never tread on each other. We're, we're. It's uh, other announcers I can tread on accidentally, and I don't mean to, and I apologise to them. But there's just when I work with Ricky or work with Miles, the flow is so nice, and and Cam as well for that matter. It's just whether it's just because they're really good and they make me look good, I don't know. But they just, oh. But if we're being honest, what you guys are tasked to do, and I don't, I think there's a, this is a lost on a lot of people is when you're talking about an eight or a 10 hour race and there's eight or 10 hours or 12 hours of air to fill, it's quite difficult to fill that by yourself. You, it, it requires a team. This year, well, we actually had a really bizarre. So you're you're not wrong. Um, and this year, we actually had a, a, a an almost reverse of that. Well, it was constant changing. You're right. There was no lack of drama in the 4400. Yeah, but we, this so this year we've always had. A, it's the course coverage that changed. Is that this year uh, we've always worked with sort of like between 30, 40, and 50, and upwards to sort of like 60 percent coverage of course. Okay, and uh, as a, and so there's always great big holes in the coverage that we're seeing. So we're always having to surmise on what we're looking at and what we're seeing. This year at Hammers, production was just so incredible. Their course coverage was just so unbelievable. I think we were up to I forget what it was now. There's 73 percent course coverage with cameras. Uh, how did you right? do that? It was nuts. I mean, I, don't quote me on that figure, but it was ridiculously high. And all of a sudden, we have so much to talk about that we are actually missing stories. And uh, and I know people were saying, coming in at home, and we're I'm watching, I'm getting texts, and they say, hey, man, why don't you talk about such and such? And it was like, well, get a chance, because we're watching our leaders, and I'm not getting a chance to kind of fill that hole in behind. Uh, and so it was a, it was another dynamic that came in this year very much, and, uh, and we actually found that we were almost had – too much to talk about at those times so the the, the commentating is evolving every every year and and it's changing as well and, and the the guys behind the scenes what you don't see is our amazing production crew who are working so hard to make the background perfect i mean probably my my craziest moment uh at kih do you remember when uh they, we lost all power a couple of years ago, we had the uh, the leaders the leaders coming in, uh, literally coming into Hammertown. They were coming down um, uh, towards back door, somewhere around there, and we lost the generator. Gone, just blew up. Just went boom. Lost all power to all the live feed show. Everything. 
done. And we stood there going, oh, my God, what do we do now? We've got, I don't know, 3,000 people stood in front of the fire pit. Um, we can't tell them anything. What, what do we say? So uh, it was like, wow. So I just kind of jumped up and said, hey, everyone. And everyone just went silent. It was like, wow. And it was just like, guys, this is the word. We're sorting out a spare generator. It's going to be up online in a few minutes. Please bear with us. As we get information from race ups, I will relay it to you verbally. Fingers crossed. Yeah, right. The whole crowd were, ama- were amazing. And uh, and as I got information coming through, and uh, as Miles was saying, on my PCI race radio, and uh, the, uh, as that was coming through, I'd shout it back to the crowd. And everyone's going, wow. And then all of a sudden, we just power came back on again as Travis hooked up the, you know, pulled out the big plugs and jammed them into another generator and uh, and got it running again and uh oh, it was, it, there was so much drama it was incredible uh, phone was in meltdown from people around the world going what's happened you know this has america just exploded or something where's the internet gone and uh yeah so but there's yeah there's so many stories like that it's incredible love coming to the united states is because it's it's a light off-road isn't a hobby it's a lifestyle you choose to live it and that is very very special indeed and you don't see that in any other country spot on i would be remiss if i didn't make this next statement that's kind of a question we i talked about how recognizable your voice is and miles voices and the comfort levels but there was a fella that got onto the live feed this year in the 4400 race with a very unmistakable voice, and he killed it, absolutely killed it. We talked about him a little bit ago, Ben Napier. Yeah, wouldn't he good? Ben has a, this incredible way of taking a of visualizing what he sees so well, and uh, he he also yeah, brings verbalizing that, that visual. Uh, yeah, and he brings that in, and he turns it into something else, and he just has these quirky little one-liners as well. But what he also has is a depth of knowledge of the sport from those early days, and he's great friends with so many of the teams that are there that he has those brilliant little background stories. So. I mean, me and Miles, we've been doing this for a long time, so there's a good chance you've probably heard a lot of our stories already. Ben was able to come in with this whole raft of fresh and interesting information and just drop it on the crowd, and it was fantastic to be part of. It was really cool. I was uh, in the truck, and I had to sit there, pull my phone out, and text him and be like, you killed it. Well done. Awesome. Awesome. Like, I was (laughs) when he started talking, I was like, all right, Ben, Ben, oh my gosh, you are on fire. I ho- Hopefully you guys, uh, you guys there in production uh, and in the announcing crew uh, set up some cameos for him in the future, man. I'll be game on to hear him some more. The, the thing with it is, is this, look, you know, we're all very blessed to get our opportunity to do it. Um, none of us have got big enough egos that we're saying, hey, we're going to do this forever. Because we understand that there are people there who can do a better job or as good a job. And we also understand that sometimes you need change. Okay. So I came, I came in as a breath of fresh air three years ago, four years ago, whatever it was, uh, five years ago, maybe even, I don't know. Okay. And I was a breath of fresh air. Okay. And I've actually gone from probably being a color commentator to now a lead commentator. And so it's now my job to make sure that as a commentator, to make sure that I am leading into my color commentators. So Ben Napier, uh, Casey Shearer, who, whoever those might be, uh, Lee Johnson, uh, Lee Johnson, who's he? He's a completely different person. But, um, 
somebody doesn't even exist but uh, the uh, all of these people uh, are making sure that they get to tell their stories so my job to kind of change that a little bit and uh, and it's understanding that and equally it's also understanding that uh, Hammers is massive and it deserves the respect of all of us and uh, and in fact my time comes and it's time to hang the mic up and move on then that's what we do so we, we have to be able to you know, to, to pass the baton on to, to other interesting people who have great stories and things to say. And I know that uh, Dave Cole will always be trying constantly to bring new storylines to the Hammers and, and to get people who have those stories up onto stage so they can tell the world all about their experiences. And, and that's very cool indeed. That's my, my MO right there. Modus operandi right there. Spread the word about our community and the stories and the amazing people. And Jim, you're one of those. Thank you so much for coming on today. I swear you're a guy who you've been a part of it. You've lived it. You've breathed it all, all of your time in the shops, you know, spinning spanners. I don't think it has as the same ring as spinning wrenches, Um, spinning spanners. Uh, that's a tongue twister. Spinning spanners on my body with my aluminium. Yeah. Did, hey, did we cover all the stories that you wanted to make sure we got out today? <laughs> oh, mate, we'd be here for another 24 <laughs> for hours. We'd go through those. I mean, mate, where do you want to start? We've got snakes in tents in, in Croatia. We've got, I don't know. I mean, we haven't even touched on Portugal. Portugal, If uh, to the, any Portuguese that are listening, I love your country. The Portuguese are motorsport mental. Um, if you ever get a chance, go to a race in Portugal. They're nuts. That's Love funny. All. JT has so. said the same thing. JT has said that is the that's the pinnacle of it. It is, and it's actually one of the few places where you can actually still go off-roading on thousands of miles of, uh, of open track um, uh, free of charge. It's, a, it's an incredible country. And uh, But then, you know, Europe, okay? We're not America. In the same way that America is so incredibly beautiful for us, Come over to Europe. Come and visit us. We've got some amazing things over here, some amazing races, and uh, we'd love to see more of you guys over here coming to play in the dirt. Well, Mr. Marsden, Mr. Gigglepin, Jim, thank you for coming on the Talent Tank. Thank you for telling, you know, a snippet of your story, this flash in time where we're kind of starting to liven up the the, the world is starting to open back up kind of post-COVID. Um, I, you know, we're planning on racing starting again sometime in the near future i saw crandon is canceled but there's uh i think there's been a pivot to some guys have started uh got a race going here in texas at uh texplex just south of uh the dallas fort worth uh metroplex i see there's some desert racing coming up which is really great news yep yeah i mean we've we're supposed to be racing here in end of july but it's still really early days yet and let's all just keep our fingers crossed there's a lot of madness going on in the world at the moment but you know what motorsport fixes a whole load of problems so let's hold it close to us let's support it let's uh make it happen and uh, and i look forward to seeing everyone on the racetrack very very soon all right well thank you jim i appreciate you coming on thank you Wyatt. it's been an absolute pleasure mate well, we are out. I hope you guys really enjoyed this season, man. It was a good one. It was a fun one. We covered a lot of ground. We covered a lot of stories. We covered a lot of people all without racing going on. That's uh insanity at its best. Kind of hard to do, but we pulled it off. I really have to thank my, uh, my three partners on this custom splice. Those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at a uh, custom Give them a call machining. Oh my gosh. 
Brannick Machine, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If if you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They are a big supporter of the Talent Tank, and I, uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, Magnitude Performance. Jason Yode and company, they're in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the Talent Tank and getting behind and supporting this uh this venture and this project and everything, give them, give them a call for your suspension needs. These guys do magic with springs. And then the parent company, mass motorsports engines, man, they have, uh, they have engines unlocked, hand built, lots of horsepower. They're your guys. Thanks guys. We'll catch you guys next season. Have a good summer. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.